Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, got a couple of things to ask you about straight away. So when I bumped into you in town the other day, I was slightly mortified because instead of saying gotta run to you when I had to like speed past you and go to an American fiction screening, I said gotta jog, which is like not something that people say. No. So after I said that, I was like, oh, God, I just I hate myself. I thought about it for the first probably 20 minutes of um, American fiction <laughs> before it, um, that feeling subsided. Did, did, did you think about that encounter at all in similar ways? Yeah, well, I was with Catherine at the time, and uh, we both turned to each other and went, that was a bit of a weird thing to say. Got a job. Is that a thing <laughs> you're you really, saying now? Did you really say that? Yeah, we had a whole conversation about it. <laughs> <laughs> got a jog yeah i just thought oh god it just wasn't quite right do you know what i mean it's a bit incorrect so uh, yeah like i assumed yeah. you were in a crazy hurry because it's not something i've ever heard you say it just sounded like extra impersonal which made you sound <laughs> maybe a little bit more cross than you were oh right no i wasn't cross at all i was like I, if anything i felt guilty that i couldn't interact with you in, oh um, that's you know, that's like fine we were worried. it felt like it felt like a no i'm not gonna talk to you <laughs> which i guess it kind of was but that combined with the the the, the specific lip phrasing <laughs> got a jog oh god got a jog fast as sonic the hedgehog famously said i mean we um, didn't we yeah. didn't talk about it for that long i think by the time we'd got to the zebra crossing down by odian we'd moved on to something else so that's like a minute of conversation probably it's not too it was about a minute of conversation we were like oh that was fine and i said well he's probably in a in a hurry for a film or something yeah so i've started doing speed runs of uh of awards films at the little theater in bath i basically i refuse to sit through the adverts anymore and i'm pretty sure now if you time it for like exactly 15 minutes you will always get like the last film trailer before the the film starts so I've been for the last three or four films I've seen. I've I've been arriving fifteen minutes late, but it is like a fine line. You know what I mean? So um, that is that's quite a bold move. Yeah, I could understand trying to cut off the early commercials, but I'd like to see the film trailers. Yeah, I that I do normally want to see them, but because I've seen so many awards films at the little theatre, I've seen the same few trailers over and over again. So I've seen um, the, the trailer for Monster from your guys at Coriander. That guy, yeah. um, <laughs> my yes. guy. Yeah, he is your guy, isn't he? Um, and then I've seen like the uh, Taste of Things trailer and June Part Two, like all the stuff they show. They kind of show the same few, so I don't feel you know massively compelled to just sit through them again. So I said yeah. uh, the Taste of Things and June trailer is a deadly combo because the Taste of Things gets your mouth all salivating over that delicious looking <laughs> food, and then suddenly you're into the dry, dry desert, and you have to recalibrate your mouth. <laughs> exactly and so uh yeah that's you know it's a real minefield isn't it um so yeah that's uh that's kind of why i've been doing that i'm nearly at the end of that though now i've only got like one more awardsy film to see actually i do have to see i do want to see the taste of things next week but um yeah i got i'm seeing the iron claw after we're recording this that's going to date this podcast horribly like awards films that will probably mean nothing in two or three years american fiction and the iron claw that is iron claw an awards film i haven't really seen it in the conversation for much no it missed out but i think it was originally intended for that but it's um i think like the the wider speculation was that a24 released both that and the zone of interest and the zone of interest was the more awardsy film uh, right. i saw that last week uh, last night and um let me tell you my friend that is a definition of a tough hang so uh <laughs> um but as you would expect but uh really good so uh yes that's two not, the, not the zone of enders as i confusingly called it this morning 
I was so gutted we didn't record that. Matthew said, how was the zone of enders? And I was like, it's kind of like, it with, with a slight energy of when your dad's not really engaged with the thing that you're into. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a little bit of that to it. Um, anyway, I'm now going to sign off every one of these podcasts with Got A Jog. So look forward to that in every episode. Got so, a jog. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, where did yeah. you settle on the uh, Tango Ice Blast? Uh, I didn't go for one. I Because I saw the Little Theatre, they don't actually sell the Tango Ice Blast there. Right. So that was more of an Odeon concern. But um, no, I decided to opt out of the Tango Blast after consulting with my um, my panel of, of advisors. They gave good. me some good sound advice on that. So that's good. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you about was the uh, tiny, well, no, the very low down chandelier made yeah. of magnifying glasses. That's like gone viral like the matthew castle version of going viral that's gone viral how's that how's that been for you yeah it's great i mean i'm not gonna lie when i had my picture taken next to it i thought this feels like it could be a, a hundred likes on twitter <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was and it and it was uh what i liked about it is that my brother's new uh sort of apartment uh in bristol is quite like my old flat which in Bath, which famously had, I say famously, in in my s- small circle of friends, uh, had, had a chandelier, which was a, a real burden because I had to change so many light bulbs in it. So I like that he's now afflicted with a apartment that has uh, its own weird chandelier. I mean, his chandelier is weird in so many other ways. Yeah, it's incredibly low. I mean, it's hanging at torso level, and the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, it's a high ceilinged uh, apartment. So the rooms are maybe like three meters tall, right? Uh, so it's hanging down a good two meters uh, <laughs> in the middle of the room. Everyone has to walk around it. I I guess if you put a table under it, it wouldn't look quite as odd, but they haven't. Uh, right. So it's just hanging there in the middle of the room, like a. It looks like a trap that had triggered at some point, and now it's now lying <laughs> dormant. Um, yeah, Resident Evil kind of thing. Yeah. Um, a bit like, you know, when Indiana Jones goes through uh, the Grail Temple in The Last Crusade, deactivating all the traps. It's a bit yeah. like that. It feels like Indiana Jones has already been through that kitchen. <laughs> uh, that's that's the energy of it. Um, yeah. yeah, and the other strange thing is that it is made from hundreds of tiny magnifying glasses, <laughs> which he had told me. And I'd just gone, oh, well, I, I guess when I see it, that will make sense. Um, but when I saw it, I was like, oh, no, that's like loads of tiny little, I mean, hundreds of things. You can unclip them really easily. So it looks like it's, I mean, is it a chandelier or is it actually a sort of display case for tiny magnifying glasses? I don't know. Yeah, it's a great picture. And for people who have missed out on this, uh, on the hilarity, uh, I have retweeted it on the Backpage Pod Twitter account. So yeah. It does look like the sort of um, front cover to your concept album. Do you know what I mean? It's like Magnifying Light, um, the sort of like prog rock album by Matthew Castle and the Castles or something like that. You know what I mean? There's like, uh, there's that vibe. I also like the idea that that some like odd chandeliers are sort of like a generational curse for the Castle family. Like, you know, you've got ancestors going back who have always had to deal with like the slight inconvenience of a weird chandelier. So uh, anyway, it's it's like a much more tame version of Eternal Darkness. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i was gonna say I, I like that chandelier when it clobbered leon s kennedy in the head that was um that was tough for him so uh yeah it, does, it looks like something that benoit blanc would have in his house <laughs> what with hugh grant that's um that's their cat that's their canonical pairing isn't it that they're uh yeah i see that means hugh grant will be in the third one anyway yes good stuff so that uh that content is out there for you to find great picture of matthew castle with lots of um 
tiny magnifying glasses. I saw that and I thought, that's good. That deserves a fab. I fabbed it. Then I saw 140 other people had done the same thing. And I thought, good for him. You know, the memory of the Borgen tweet is, uh, you know, it's sort of like stricken from the record. So There's uh, a very I'm thin line between a Borgen tweet and a magnifying chandelier tweet. <laughs> yeah, I can't. There for the there. grace of God, go I. <laughs> Right then, this podcast, the PlayStation 1 draft, or PlayStation draft is more accurate, really. I'm sure purists would hate me saying that. People on Twitter have been trying to call it the PSX draft. I don't think it was ever called PSX. I think that was like a, maybe it was a working title like that, and some 90s mags called it PSX. But for the purposes of this podcast, PlayStation draft is what we're going with. So, Matthew, I've roped you into this. This is definitely like the, I would say along with the PSP, and the PS3, the draft I've bullied you into the most, uh, and you didn't want to go, but you have been like brought kicking and screaming into the light. <laughs> what is the the deal here for you and the PS1? Uh, well, very simply, I didn't have one. I haven't made any effort in my adult life to go back and and get to grips with it. You know, something has to give. You can't know about everything, he said. No. While, while the listeners roll their eyes, but given the size and importance of playstation uh i imagine lots of people will be surprised how very little i know about it and how little experience i had with it i mean yeah it it it, it just feels like a bit of a a lot of what i'm going to be saying is going to sound slightly fraudulent <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is i think this is the only draft we've done where neither of us owned the console while it was out right. i think that's like i think that's the first time we've tried to do that so that is quite ambitious, and it does mean that, yeah, like maybe um, people might sense the odd knowledge gap, that sort of thing. I feel reasonably confident with it um, for, for, for a few reasons. One, a lot of the games, a lot of the key games have been re-released on the other platforms. And two, I did, I did discover a, a lot more of this catalogue when I had a PlayStation 2, so that was the key thing. Yeah. That was when I went back and sort of like discovered the cream of the crop, and I knew a lot of friends who had them too, so, you know... That's my kind of way into it, but for you, it's been a lot, lot trickier, hasn't it? Yeah, I've, I've had to call on some, some favors <laughs> from uh, f- fans and people with expertise to help. Uh, not fans of mine, some fans of PlayStation <laughs> uh, to, <laughs> to uh, give me, give me some pointers. Uh, I've had to, like, you know, I, I'm going to come clean. Most of the things I'm hoping to pick, I've not played, so I've been, you know, watching, you know playthroughs on youtube i've been basically trying to like sort of like swatting for an exam for a class that i just didn't pay attention in for 25 years Um, (laughs) and now i'm like shit it's finally the exam i wish i'd known about playstation um trying to remember things that i'd read in games master because i felt like i was relatively on top of it like at the time through games master um but a lot of these games, like all the ones I could think of were just shit things that you would never pick, like nightmare creatures and things like that. Um, right. So, yeah, it's weird what has stuck and, and what hasn't stuck, but we'll see what happens. I'm basically trying to set this up so that if I get absolutely thrashed, on it doesn't look too bad for me. Yeah, I think that's it. I think you just have to go into it thinking the stakes are quite low. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. sort of like, I can't take things you love because you don't love any of this. So that's <laughs> that, that's fine. You know what I mean? So Yeah, yeah I just I, I always feel on this podcast that like admitting any lack of knowledge 
it feels like you're sort of opening yourself up for like, well, if you don't know about that, why should I listen to you about anything? And I know that's preposterous because we've proven time and time again, or at least I hope we've proven time and time again, that we do know what we're talking about in our areas of expertise. But you know what the internet's like. It's that kind of, oh, you got this one thing wrong, so everything you've ever said was wrong. The thing is, though, we've never really been challenged on that sort of thing by people. I think that our long-term listeners understand that we have knowledge gaps that are simply related to our age or our availability of, you know, access to certain consoles. So uh, we don't get a lot of shit for that, you know. I've seen some of that sentiment around some of the Sega stuff in the past. Yeah, but where that's it's like, because... oh, I'm kind of surprised, you know, I'm sort of disappointed, sort of disappointed they don't know about Dreamcast. And obviously that I've met with, you know, I tried to get around that and make myself feel better by painting all Dreamcast likers as, as like fundamentally bad people. <laughs> yeah, 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 and, and that's that's how I've dealt with it. It's kind of harder to do that for PlayStation because obviously <laughs> it's a massive ongoing concern. A hundred million people you're writing off. A <laughs> hundred you know, million people uh... can't be wrong, or can <laughs> they? Um, no, they probably aren't. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one in the sense that yes, it does test our knowledge a little bit more, I suppose. There's not the, I don't have the innate. PS1 knowledge that I do for the PS2, for example, where it was very, very easy in that draft for me to come conjure 10, 20, maybe even 30 games that I, I could talk about. Here, well, I actually, I can, I, no problem with 10, and I can make it to 20, but if I had to go deeper than that, I think I would struggle um, in terms of like having a, you know, that sort of like really deep understanding of the hardware and the software. Um, well, actually, no, I, I get, I get what the deal was, but I just wasn't. It wasn't happening in real time to me because I was playing PC games at the time. That's the yeah. That's the reality of me in the PS One. But yeah, they um, you know, we we've kind of like found our way around that. Anyway, the um, the sort of knowledge gap thing. Anyway, we're just drafting a ringer like Ashley Day to talk about the Dreamcast, and then we don't have to worry about it. But when there's no ringer, it's just us. It's a bit more like oh, I guess we got well, just a sink or swim, I guess. But um, yeah, I I think it'll be a good episode. I think the categories are good. There's a the the catalogue of games is so vast that inevitably there's a couple of things in there that you've played, Matthew. I mean, I know there's at least two games that you have played on the um on PS one that you know you might want to draft. So probably yeah. some more besides that. And uh yeah, it is a genuinely interesting console to discuss because it was a, a seismic shift in the games industry and the types of games that were being made just changed overnight. It was kind of the birth of three D games. So there's lots to lots to talk about, Matthew. I think it'll be good. So uh Yes. Um, are you ready for my very lengthy preamble? Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, my source on this is a piece I mentioned a couple of weeks ago with um, when Jeremy was on, which is the Edge feature on the making of PlayStation, which I believe was in the 200th issue. I think it's 2009, something like that. And I essentially read that and cross-checked it with a couple of other sources, just because some parts of the PlayStation story are so bizarre, so strange, they almost sound like early 90s kind of like corporate fiction where where you can't find video sources for this stuff as you would in the let's yeah. say doing a 360 draft most of the stuff is available much of this is just written down and you know is communicated from people at the time so it's quite wild um it's quite a strange story it, i'm waiting for the uh inevitable aaron sorkin film based on this <laughs> yeah it's a console built out of spite basically um you know that's which is an amazing reason to do anything i've always believed that spite is a very powerful motivator but on this scale um the, the sort of like uh you know the the scale of kind of like revenge story it is i mean you know it's a very sort of like from sweet... sprites to spite <laughs> that's uh, the tagline like, for the film 
two-star Apple TV movie energy, that one. You know, that's, um, you know, much like the Tetris movie, yeah. which is quite entertaining. But yeah, so it's a really interesting story of a company being basically sort of like spurned into action by, you know, some sort of like bad faith deal making, essentially. And it results in the games industry changing forever. So I'll get into it, Matthew. Um, you probably won't talk for a while, but you can jump in every now and then with a quip, which is what I've come to depend on you. What I'll do is I'll go, mm. Mm. <laughs> every like 20 seconds because i know people like that i've come to depend on you for um for like wacky quips every five minutes as well that's like definitely one of the usps you bring to this podcast <laughs> so definitely jump in God. so yeah so essentially origins of the playstation it was originally a project for nintendo a lot of people will know this at ces 1991 ken kutaragi who'd been an employee at sony since 1971 revealed a disc-based add-on for the SNES to the world. And one day later, Nintendo kills the partnership and teams up with Philips instead. The disagreement was over royalties. It was... I think it was... To read about, it sounds a bit like Sony was demanding a bit too much from Nintendo. And without that in place, went ahead and announced the uh, announced the hardware. I believe they, are, they were happy with the hardware, but that, that royalty element of it just hadn't been figured out. And because the SNES was such a tightly controlled platform by nintendo it essentially you know created some some real headaches there and some and some problems between the companies so it's quite rare for this sort of thing to happen in japanese business culture is my understanding that like this is the sort of thing that happens in america all the time and you're like yeah that guy you know it's like it's all kind of for lols and it doesn't matter if someone's like a massive bastard but in japan i think this is like you talked about this before they still have the concept of shame which we in the western world have decided to move on from in the past 15 years so <laughs> again i was sort of a bit like is it did this definitely happen this way and it, it sounds like it did but uh, uh norio ogre who was the um president of sony i really hope i'm pronouncing his uh, name right there if i'm not i apologize saying ogre over and over again and getting it wrong would be embarrassing um <laughs> let's hope so insisted that they stay in the race and essentially gave kutaragi some 3d graphics wizards who'd been building this broadcasting technology and they went from there basically in in terms of like building the um building the i think there's something like they had these 3d workstations where they were like let's ball this down into a games console essentially that's as technical as i can get this is not digital foundry um there's a great um extract in this edge piece um when ogre asked what sort of chip it would require kutaragi replied that it would need one million gate arrays a number that made ogre laugh Sony's production could only achieve 100,000, but Kusaragi slightly countered with, are you going to sit back and accept what Nintendo did to us? The reminder enraged Ogre all over again. So, <laughs> interesting stuff there. Um, I just, you know, again, like it's one of those things where I, I couldn't find another source for that exact quote, but I want to believe that happened because that's like, you know, <laughs> that is pure sorkin, isn't it? Are you it, really, going to accept what Nintendo did to us? <laughs> um, so... Kutaragi was moved to Sony Music because there was a lot of internal politics over getting into into games at, at Sony. Basically, it was there was an old guard who thought saw games as toys and saw the market as not their market. Essentially, mm. they were like you know this sort of like powerhouse electronics manufacturer, but but they were determined to. Uh, Sony's president was determined to make this happen. Kutaragi moved to Sony Music where there was fewer internal politics and founded um scei so sony computer entertainment international and sony was big on sony music was big on spending money to launch things and attracting big talent and 
they were essentially this more ambitious sort of like faster moving part of the company that were not weighed down by the old guard at least that's how it was framed in the piece i was reading about it Mm. there are a few other key players who come into this um interestingly there's a writer who was once nominated for the icelandic literature prize at least according to the edge piece called olaf olafsson again another name i hope i'm pronouncing correctly it's gonna be a lot of that here um who was um he was made president of the newly founded SEE umbrella company that this company sat under and are another really key figure um uh, terry uh, tokenaka who would run SEI uh, later on um, and tokenaka brought the vision that sony's appeal had to be twofold the bit it had to be the business choice and the creative choice for publishers it couldn't be one or the other to succeed it had to be seen as the console you want to develop for then also just has the capacity to to sell millions and millions of units mm. and they kind of knew that to crack this market they essentially needed both and then the console about you know about two years after the um the ces unveiling um and then the, the big kind of nintendo fallout in summer 1993 they green light the console and it's a cd-rom based console which is perfect for sony who were printing millions of cds at the time and obviously were a huge you know the the Walkman and the um you know and the the, the sort of like uh, was it Discman the CD player uh, yeah. whatever it was yeah so like the you know hugely important um sort of like music based uh, sort of hardware so it kind of made sense that it was CDs. Sony's advantage was that developers and publishers were ready for a change from the 16-bit era, where Nintendo and Sega were super restrictive about what you could do or, or, about how how their games were released and you know what what was released that sort of thing they just controlled this market and they essentially sent a bunch of evangelists out to sell the dream of playstation to the industry and made it clear to them they could control their own supply infrastructure which nintendo controlled on its own hardware because obviously making carts quite expensive and Mm. um there were like restrictions to how 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 many you could print when you could print them that sort of thing um so I, i saw a quote from is it mark cerny Right, saying that you know on a cart-based game before people switched to CD-ROMs, you know you were lucky to make like a dollar per sale, and and then sort of relatively, you know, with discs, he said that would raise to like ten dollars per sale to give an idea of like the gulf between the two formats. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great bit of research, Matthew. I appreciate that. I hope you got more nuggets like that as we go, or was that, <laughs> was that literally here? I don't no, know, I've got a couple was, uh... of nuggets. No, that's good. That is useful. But again, it, it it illustrates right why there was a there was like hunger for for change. And mm. I think it's worth noting because obviously, third party publishers and developers would be such a massive part of, of Sony's success on the original PlayStation that you know, just that the fact that they were so willing to make that that jump to new hardware was just yeah, it was just a sign of the times essentially. So uh, developers loved the hardware but were nervous about reaching players. And in 1994 at a hotel in Tokyo, Sony basically unveiled this phalanx of marketing bots and basically said, we're going to go out and sell your games, essentially. Like, we're not going to, you know, it's sort of like, uh, we're Sony, we know what we're doing with with marketing and we've, you know, we're building this team to do that. It's interesting. So Edge Piece frames the the success of playstation as a marketing one as well as a you know the it was the right hardware for the right time which is mm. i think is, is true and that applies on the developer side too so uh, publishers signed up apparently before royalty fees were even discussed that's how keen they were for this which is interesting because it, it really does suggest like a you know a fair bit of sort of like apprehension towards where nintendo was at, at the time the other advantage of sony is there is an explosion of PC software on CDs in the early 90s where 
you know developers were starting to use fmvs that sort of thing and you know 3d graphics and the, the kind of like look of games was advancing and in in parallel having a console that where you were sort of like you could you could you had the similar capabilities in terms of you know fmvs that sort of thing which you couldn't easily do on a on a cartridge meant that it was another kind of like factor that made them an easier choice for developers and it was but it was breaking out of the cartridge lead time that really worked in sony's advantage so they developers essentially couldn't react to to demand with uh, sega and nintendo's hardware they were just sort of like bound by the very tightly controlled supply infrastructure and then printing cds was just very cheap and easy to do so again like if a game was a big success you could you could flood the market with more with more discs so again another fact to work in their favor it's quite Um, one quite interesting thing i read actually there was a playstation oral history in game informer mm. and as part of it they'd obviously talked to a lot of playstation's current first party like in-house developers about Mm. what they thought at the time so there was a guy from gorilla saying you know the the talk you know talking about the the benefits of of a disc-based format and things like that and one one of the interesting ones was you know a lot of these people who are working with playstation now got on board at playstation one and were there from the start um an exception being sucker punch who obviously famously entered the sort of the market on N64 rather than PlayStation 1. Rocket Robot on Wheels. Yeah, Rocket Robot on Wheels. And they were saying that they could see all the benefits of the PlayStation 1 and that it allowed for, like, you know, amazing music and video sequences and, um, like, you know, the really, really polished art. But they were like, those weren't our strengths. We didn't have the skill set to make a game for that. As programmers, Mm. we were better like to try and work in the constraints of the n64 like where our skills worked was in like maximizing the power of a of a more challenging development environment if that makes sense mm. so they That's... were like rather than try and compete you know on the terms that playstation was competing on we decided to go n64 first even though we could see the advantages of that which i thought was kind of interesting given what happens to sucker punch going forward yeah, yeah, that's a you know that's, again really really good insight. Did, did most people echo the sort of like sentiment that the cartridges were just too restrictive, that it was just too hard to sort of like oh make... yeah, it was it was yeah having to commit to say you know they were like you couldn't be reactive if something was doing better you know it was much harder to kind of produce them at speed and you know you just had so much more control over what you were publishing and printing, um, which was mm. just like. That that's that's the, the I think maybe that is like the the radical shift which like powers most of this. Yeah, I think so. And it's uh, it's it's also just I think that the the capability to like do proper three D graphics as well. That's just really mm. appealing. So developers wanting to make that jump. So yeah, I mean you know it's um, obviously a key thing that happens with uh, with uh, PlayStation is that Square uh, jumps across. We'll talk about this uh, a yeah. bit more uh, soon. But like the again the the software what what they what they did in Final Fantasy VII was essentially using every single thing that PlayStation could do right throughout from the. 3D visuals to the FMVs. These are things they wanted to to put in the game. To having the music sound as good as it did, it was just it was just very appealing. It seemed to just fit the bill for so many developers. So um, yeah, that makes sense. But uh, hey, Rocket Robot Wheel was a banger, Matthew. It so, is a uh, banger. It is a banger. Yeah. 
this is how the culture shift sort of happens. It's all about sort of like the ease of of working with PlayStation. There's just so many reasons to that they kind of tick the box essentially versus um, sort of like picking the path of least resistance, I guess. So, yeah, so a lot of um, devs made the jump. And apparently another factor in that was there was a lack of competition or at least a perceived lack of competition in the sense that Sony had no in-house studios whatsoever. It changed in 1993 when they acquired Psygnosis, who were still allowed to publish games on other platforms themselves. That's how um, you end up with G-Police on PC or Wipeout 64, for example. Um, but they were dependent on external partners. But, you know, again, that was part of the appeal. They weren't on, on SNES or N64. You were up against Nintendo themselves, master game developers. So really interesting. Again, that's a, seen as another plus in, in their favor. So when the PlayStation launches in December 1994 in Japan, only has Ridge Racer as a notable launch title, the rest are very forgettable, sold 300,000 within a month. Um, and it was sold at a loss, which again was another contentious thing that Kataragi had to fight. He was like, we have to get into this market and this is the price we pay, but we'll make it back on software. And that's essentially the you know, the mentality all uh, sort of console manufacturers go by now. I mean, maybe not Nintendo. They might still sell hardware at a, you know, a profit. I'm not sure. But certainly it's it's fairly well known that, you know, uh, that, you know, most of the most recent hardware has been sold at a loss because, yeah, you sell games and therefore it's worth it. Mm. So another key thing that happens um, ahead of the US launch in 1995, uh, there's the, the moment on stage at E3, at Sony's E3 conference, where they go 299 just as a Saturn basically like uh, sort of shadow drops at 399 and that basically kills Saturn in the moment it's one of those great sort of like E3 sort of like stories that people tell and apparently the um that was not fully signed off within Sony and there was a little bit of consternation internally about about saying 299 on stage but hey it really sort of um it really kind of like worked for them obviously so Saturn was basically annihilated in that moment and it's interesting because the PlayStation name was apparently contentious within Sony. They'd actually bought the rights to it from Yamaha, which was quite interesting. Huh. But like again, like uh, the Ogre, again, hoping saying his name right. If I'm not, fuck it out. Um, but <laughs> basically, again, like like the name. So spent a bunch of money to, to get that name. And, you know, I think PlayStation's a great name. It's sort of like it really, really does everything. Maybe it's because we have so much history with it. But I don't know. I think at the time as well, it just tells you what it is in the name it's it's pretty yeah in in the again in this game informer piece andrew house who was more involved in marketing i think at the time said that there was a big push to to call it psx specifically in america but they were very like it has to be a universal global name yeah 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 which is oh that is interesting that makes sense this sounds like a good feature have you got any any more bits and pieces to add here matthew this uh sounds useful they did say um interestingly it had um oh god oh what's his name who's the guy who d- does the place like head more recently who's heading up like the playstation indie stuff um uh, oh is it shuhei yoshida yeah that's it shuhei yoshida um, was talking about you know in in that first year of release before it was out in the West, um, it it didn't feel like a sure thing that it was going to like beat Saturn. Apparently, Saturn like had a, had a much stronger Christmas than it did in Japan. Yeah, and they were all kind of shitting it a bit, which maybe then inspires what happens at E three. Maybe I, they, he didn't say that in the article, but you could see that that may be happening. Yeah, that's that's possibly part of it. And the other way in which Sony was quite forward thinking is they built an audience in Europe. They built a market in Europe. And my understanding was that 
Sega and Nintendo at the time saw Europe as a bit of an afterthought and I think that probably bears out in how long we had to wait for some of the games here right and so yeah I think that Mm. that kind of tracks whereas Sony was like this is a massive market it's um you know potentially as big as the the US and um yeah essentially once the generation was over the US and Europe sold a similar amount of PlayStation so they were ahead of the game on that as well so yeah so they it launches in the US on the 9th of September 1995 sold 800,000 units before the end of the year like a, a sizable success and then it launched later in uh, September in Europe as well performed similarly well so was like a, a big deal out of the gate it was uh yeah it was you know it, it definitely sort of snowballs but even at the start people were ready for this thing number of publishers who embraced sony was enormous pretty much every japanese publisher most notably square um sort of like jumped aboard and it was a sign that everyone was ready for change like i say so that's basically what i've got in the making of playstation matthew so again like it's a, a nintendo add-on that they just decide to turn into a like the a core foundation of their business and becomes like a such a big deal that there are some years where playstation's responsible for 90 percent of sony's profits that's like a boast that phil harrison put in this piece that i was reading so yeah really really interesting but the um the sort of like obviously the games are what make the hardware and i think the thing that defines playstation is it brings gaming into the 3d age and it got more types more different types of people to play a larger array of games than they ever had previously and i think that sort of combined thing of just this is what this is kind of like what 3D games look like to a massive audience and this flood of things that people had never seen before just makes it feel like just a fundamental shift in in the games that were made and sold and played like it just this is a moment where games change forever do you think that's a fair way of putting the PlayStation's legacy definitely like you know I remember when it came out and you know like I say reading about it in Games Master it felt like a new audience was being targeted with it. It felt like a, a console for older gamers, and you know, part of the reason I didn't have any interaction with it or much desire to have one at the time was it was well targeted at people who weren't me, and a lot of the genres that were big on it were not necessarily genres I was particularly into, you know, and uh, like there isn't actually much crossover in terms of like which genres the N64 and the PlayStation excelled at. They kind of conquered different realms quite clearly, mm. at which feels, you know, at the time I would have said, oh, that's a weakness of PlayStation. It didn't really speak to me as a lover of platformers and adventure games. But actually, you know, it was quietly building... 100 million sales elsewhere you know people who wanted you know Tekken and Wipeout and whatnot which just just didn't speak to me so yeah it's but it's kind of hard to see things outside of your bubble when you're that young I think the genres that mattered on PlayStation I think you're right there's a it's a different set of um of genres to what succeeds on N64 tiny bit of crossover in racing games are a huge part of uh, games at this time or sports games for example yeah. but like um fighting games uh, arcade experiences generally rpgs survival horror these are all like a massive deal on playstation even music games music based games which were a bit of a newer newer sort of idea so yeah that's um yeah those are essentially the other genres that that do thrive on playstation i mean you know 
platformers sort of more debatable, but we can we can look at that I, later. Listen, I know there are loads of platformers on it, but really, and this isn't just me being an asshole, but like if if you think the platforming genre on PlayStation can compete with the platforming genre in sixty four, <laughs> you're deluded. That's in, that's an insane stance. Well, no, I think I agree with you. I think that just like the the very highest end platformers were on were on Nintendo's hardware. But you'd expect that from Nintendo, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, well, that but that's sense. like all, that's kind of like all they had, you know. Um, okay, uh, yeah, exactly. So Matthew, we've kind of got a bit of it there. So your your personal relationship to the PlayStation, what is it? Is it very limited, like you say? Yeah, it's uh, basically as, as limited as I've laid out. Um, I had a couple of friends who had them, so if if there were things that I kind of coveted through, you know, reading magazines. Uh, you know, I would I would hope friends would get them or have a demo and a couple of the games that I'm trying to get in the draft, which we'll talk about later. You know, I have very you know clear memories of of, of playing them after school at friends' houses and particularly things which were a bit more adult and violent. You know, there weren't sort of heaps of that on the N64, so they they seemed very attractive. You know, there are a couple of things which were like obviously sort of definitive PlayStation One games, but. You know, I did eventually play on PC. Uh, you know, I, I, that's probably an indicator of where I was at with it. Is that we, you know, we we waited for PC ports of Metal Gear Solid and Final Fantasy VII rather than entertain the thought of getting a play. I mean, I say entertain the thought of getting a PlayStation One. It wasn't a thing we could make happen. You know, we'd we'd we had an N, we had an N sixty four. The idea of us having both consoles like, that felt a little unheard of at the time. Like you would be an opulent motherfucker if you had two consoles. Yeah, I knew one kid who had both, and he was a child of divorce, and he had an N64 at his mum's house and a PlayStation at his dad's house, and I was like, that's it, that's how you get both, you, your parents need to basically divorce. And yeah, then my parents were divorced, and we had an N64 that we took between the two houses. Oh, you were swindled then, my friend, like, <laughs> you know, it's more you should have demanded. It was it was quite an interesting kid, he was quite, quite wayward, he used to set fire to leaves and stuff like that, he was Ooh. a bit like, is this kid definitely okay? Anyway, he seems to have grown up into a... An adult with children. I won't name him, obviously, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, it's interesting actually because I think this this is something I'm going to ask you about. But I knew more kids who had an N64 than a PlayStation, and yeah. I don't know if that's because of how how it was targeted. I knew some. I knew one one family who's like the brother, the older brother had a PlayStation, and the younger brother had the N64. But N64 was more of a fixture of my life. Because I think that, and people might disagree with this listing, I think that N64 just had like this five to ten games that were incredibly sticky and replayable. And so you would just end up playing GoldenEye more than you would end up playing anything else on PlayStation that's similar. There's a few exceptions to that, and I don't want to give my hand too much away in the draft, but there were you know, a few fighting games or yeah. racing games where maybe we did do a bit past the pad and stuff like that. But nothing that really compares to GoldenEye or Mario Kart in terms of how pervasive a part of our young lives yeah. that was, like how much multiplayer we did with those games. So that was interesting. But uh, I did know a bunch of kids still who had PlayStations. And it was it was like being exposed to this whole world of, of a completely different stuff. Like the N64 and ps1 libraries are vastly different they are like just you know just just like night and day really they're basically alternate realities to each other just like completely different like the rpgs for example they don't really exist on n64 that's basically like uh you know there's like two or three and that's and that's it on n64 Mm -hmm. whereas on playstation 
that's an absolutely massive genre like i, I a key memory for me is seeing a uh, a friend uh, walking around Wall Market at Final Fantasy VII and me being like, what's that? And even seeing like a TV advert of uh, Cloud on the motorcycle and on like, I don't know, morning TV or something and being like, what is that game? And, right. you know, and there was a, a little bit of that. There was, I knew kids who had chipped PlayStation, so I played an absolute, absolutely tons of games as a result of that. Like piracy was a massive problem on this console. And I knew like a kid who had a box of like 40 games. And that's the other thing that I think separates N64 and PlayStation, Matthew, is that N64, we talked about this, you'd have about 10 games and you'd have like one Xena Warrior Princess sized <laughs> yeah. uh, Duff game in there. And the rest would be like all classics. PlayStation, I feel like people tend to have like 20 to 30 PlayStation games and you would have more Duff ones within that because... You know, they had budget, price range. You could get games quite cheaply on PlayStation, obviously, because they were disc-based games. Is that how you sort of perceive the library whenever you came into contact with a friend who'd have a PlayStation, that you would see, like, some of the, the sort of, like, top series in there, but you'd also see a load of nonsense as well? Yeah, definitely. For some reason, when you were saying that, what popped into my head was, like, a slightly manky version of Worms <laughs> on the PlayStation, which we've obviously been playing on the Amiga um, yeah, I was I was definitely aware that the PlayStation had like loads more games than than the N sixty four, and but I, I I definitely agree with what you're saying about like the, the the stickiness of it. Weirdly, I don't know if this really answers the question, but it, like if you if you go just a couple of years older than me, I think it does shift quite dramatically. Like at work, there are people who are in you know say forty or forty one, and for them. You know, like PlayStation was part of maybe their sixth form college and university experience, mm. where it just you could see it fitting in way more there and making sense in like a dorm room, maybe more than like a kiddish Nintendo sixty four. Um, just the name Nintendo is like a bit of a like lamer thing to kind of have at university in the nineties, um, and those people were obsessively playing like Tekken three or. You know, like we've had people, who, you know, our peers on this podcast who are a couple of years older than us, and they had big PlayStation experiences at university, like Simon Park and Nathan Brown, Ellie, and people. You know, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. It, it does. It does. I think it is just. You know, I, I I feel like I'm just two years two years too young. But yeah, going back to the 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 the, the, the nature of the collections definitely like the people I knew who had PlayStations they all had like wildly different collections like me and my friends who had the N64 we basically all owned the same N64 games um, mm-hmm. where like you know I remember one of my sister's friends had a PlayStation they had all this like weird license shit and then there was a, a guy in the year above us who had a PlayStation and he had all the kind of violent stuff and it, it felt like I don't know, it almost felt like you could have individual tastes could begin forming a bit more on PlayStation. Yeah, I think that's probably true. It's just it's just such so much more to choose from, um, both good and bad. I mean, I feel like the games that were sort of like the licensed rubbish that's flooding the Mega Drive was went to PlayStation instead, you know what I mean? That's sort of like where, yeah, those games go and live on PlayStation, but so does everything else, basically. There's just, the library was deep enough that you might end up with a weird 7 out of 10 something that ends up becoming like the foundation of your taste and then suddenly you're the guy who's on forums talking about how good Bushido played this you know what I mean like this that sort of that happens one thing I want to ask you about was that version of Worms Mankey on PlayStation I thought it was a pretty good version if I recall that's how well, I got maybe, into I, Worms I, that way, I, but, I played uh, loads of Worms on the Amiga and I, I I actually when I said that I remembered that um 
when I went home from university, like somehow a, a what was the very what was like the last cheapest PlayStation one that was ever released? Like it was that really was small. Yeah, it was PS One. That was how it's branded, basically. Well, that, yeah, um, one of those, like one of those, had uh, like surfaced in our house at some point. Right. And I remember them playing Worms on that. No, it's fight. Like it's Worms, isn't it? But like I, I, I just remember it, it, it looking, and I don't know. Maybe like the ma- it felt better with a mouse. This is where you say there's mouse support on PS One. I love <laughs> No, I have no idea. I just I know it's got like the little fmvs of the worms getting messed up or whatever and some of the i think there's some brief fmvs when you lose in that game or something like that but uh no i was just curious i thought like were you a big you're suddenly going digital foundry on the worms uh, oh no no it wasn't like no, nothing <laughs> like that. I, uh, anecdotally i remember looking at on tv and going oh that looks a bit rubbish yeah, I, I don't think I don't think i perceive much of a difference but anyway okay um so yeah okay so um Right then, looking back then, do you think this is a great catalogue of games, Matthew? Especially as someone who was not there at the time. How do you think it's held up over time, and how much of it would you want to play now? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I don't think it's an all timer. Hmm. Like compared, quite compared to some. I mean, it, it definitely has some absolutely like essential classics there. Some really important stuff. I think part of the problem is maybe a lot of it like lives on in other like forms or i came to it on other formats and things like that which maybe impacts it i don't know is that gonna be a wildly unpopular take um i think think it is an all-timer i think it's just it's like wide and deep in the way that the playstation 2's catalog was i think that where it maybe differs from something like the ps2 is that the number of games you would actually want to play now is a lot smaller and i think this applies to n64 as well where it's like the earliest days of 3D, and therefore, you know, is it that appealing to go back to before uh, we figured out how you do controls for like first person yeah. shooters? Exactly, you know. Yeah. I I I, th- I, th- I think that's probably a better way of putting it. Um, I don't really see the appeal now. Yes, at the time, yeah, of course, right. You know, this is laying the foundations for how lots of genres are going to work in 3D, and I I absolutely get that. Um, maybe just with with my 2024 vision, I'm like, eh, I could probably live without most of this stuff, um, or or I'm just so familiar with it that that it it, it doesn't jump out. Uh, yeah, it, I still can't quite get over that. I just think that the, the a lot of the genres where uh, big leaps were being made just are still things that I'm not hugely into. Like it, in my heart, I'm may, I'm just not really a bit like a like. A, a big early playstation person right right i think there's some genres that hold up better than others i think rpgs are where the platform just really sings there's just so many yeah. rpgs on this console and that is an easier genre to revisit now i mean in recent years we've seen like um you know uh sort of uh, chrono cross come back for example and obviously the final fantasy games have been excavated and republished elsewhere in the, the three the mainline entries and um, tactics as well and you know there's sort of like a lot there's a lot of like cultish kind of rpgs on on playstation as well like you know you look at xeno gears and the like and yeah it's square squaresoft alone so many sort of like so many games and even in recent years we talked about that game racing lagoon that had been translated like a car racing rpg made from squaresoft at the time too so mm. i think that sort of that stuff is has, has aged well i think that 
there's like there's there are a few reasons to go back and play you know a fighting game from the time or a racing game from the time that sort of thing and i think that's true for the n64 as well there's there are very few n64 games i would want to play now um there's probably just as many playstation games that i'd play now as n64 games honestly i think it's very much a kind of like you pick the cream of the crop and play those or the ones you have nostalgia for but i will say i will definitely underline i think this is a great catalog and i think Mm -hmm. that this is definitely like at the time i think n64 felt like where a sort of like my sort of heart belonged at the time like i wanted golden eye so badly lilac wars i just loved all those kind of games but uh, playstation felt like like more than half of what was going on in games was happening on playstation and i just yeah. I, I felt like it was just so loud as a format how much of how the playstation was perceived as a more mature console versus the n64 was about marketing versus the reality of what each system offered uh, it's quite it's quite sort of interlinked like they were definitely marketing it as that but then i think they had the the games to back it up you know like they yeah. like you know i can remember you know reading about wipeout and them talking about like the licensed soundtrack but to, to me i was like well i would fucking hate that music why would i ever want to listen to that you know like <laughs> that that is not co- like it might be cool but it is not for me where other people would go you know here's something which is like it's positioning itself as it's it's part of the the young adult or adult culture in the same way that you know some music film tv was at the time and here was a game which like you know not to single it out but you know literally has you know you know that cool music you listen to in the clubs it's in this game like it has the chops it is that you know that that weird place where you know those ties between the, this new gaming division and like the old older music division and and its understanding of of what was cool and what worked and they're kind of one and the same like it it, it it's almost as effective or if it is as effective as you know when you know nintendo change direction with wii and ds and they have the game library to actually speak to the people they're marketing at you know like it doesn't always happen that way you know people try and sell things however they can you know to have such like unity of of like messaging and product is actually quite rare there's a a lot a lot that defines the playstation games for the time music is definitely part of it that sort of like drum and bass kind of sound that you get in <laughs> right so many games like playing like um like like g police or like a ridge racer game like the music is just so distinctive there are loads of like playlists on youtube that sum up this kind of like soundscape you know and just have like a bunch of it back to back and you realize that that was the sound of playstation it was so distinctive and such a powerful part of what the console Mm -hmm. offered so yeah i think it was i think it was born out in the games that were released but there was definitely like the marketing was definitely part of it the marketing sort of like solidified the dream of what the game sold which is what marketing's supposed to do so yeah i think it did a good job of positioning games as cool and mature it's just such a different proposition to either the mega drive or the or the nintendo like even the way the mega drive was marketed was quite quite juvenile in some ways particularly in the us um that's not to say that i think the 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 games are but like uh yeah you just you just see the difference in in what they're going for and who they're targeting for sure um yeah okay so both consoles had quite distinctive 3d aesthetics matthew i was gonna try and bore this down as like n64 was like blurry ass 3d but like but quite uh, but a little bit more detailed and pretty whereas ps1 was like not blurry but like 
that wall is vibrating 3D. Yeah. Where like, yeah, and, and everything looks less detailed. Does that kind of sum up the aesthetics of these consoles quite nicely? Yeah. Yeah, PS1 is definitely sharper, but has whatever the, f- the fuck was going on with textures in those games. Like, it was all a bit wobbly. Yeah. Yeah, N64, softer, but sort of like felt maybe a bit more sort of solid and real underneath. <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird one. I think just, yeah, the, the vibrating walls thing is just like, that's just like how, when I think of like the wall textures and Shadow Moses, I just think of them like sort of like popping in and out a little bit. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely. But then it, it, I, I don't know, in time, like you become quite affectionate for that look. You know? Yeah, definitely. Like yeah. It, 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 it's it's so of its own. Like, I, you know, it, it, a lot of N64 stuff, when you go back to them, they look, they look quite like rough now. Like, you know, they're quite hard work. Um, and I kind of I, I'm almost less put off by PlayStation, even though I didn't I, ha- I didn't really have that connection with it at the time. I, you know, I, I it, it sort of feels deliberate in a way. Yeah, I think when they did the uh, 3DS ports of the two Zelda N64 games, I felt like the effort made there to meet me more than halfway was very welcome. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, like likewise, playing like uh, Perfect Dark and. Um, <laughs> And Goldeneye on, on 360, you know, yeah. so, uh, or Xbox, uh, yeah, Xbox Series X. So, yeah. Uh, okay, cool. So, um, that yeah, I think that's definitely part of it, is how those games looked was was quite different because of the limitations of the hardware. Um, I want to briefly discuss the official PlayStation mag at the time. I've basically got at the end of this section, like, a load of, like, vague PS1 ephemera I wanted to go through. But I think the, the magazine element of this is actually huge. So... There's the demo disc they included. Demo discs were a massive part of the PS1 experience, I think. It was just suddenly people had access to a bunch of different games they might never try. I don't know how much the demo disc scene existed outside of PC mags, where obviously it was a huge part of it. Like, I don't know how much of it there was with older mags. I, think, I have a feeling this might have been part of the mix, but maybe like the it was like the, the access to like the scale of games you were getting here. Like, just how big the titles were and obviously how much money was going more money was going into some of these games at the time it just seemed like the demo disc was a key part of the opm experience it's had friends who had stacks of these and i just remember going to like my cousin's house and putting in every demo disc he had and being like this is cooler world this is medieval these are all these games that i've just played for like nine or ten minutes and they are still but they are like burned into my brain sort of years later did you did you have much encounter with this side of things, Matthew? This felt like a key part of the PS1 sort of culture to me. I experienced it definitely on PS2, which I think it has, has you know, the same kind of, you know, vibe. You know, you just feel like you can be better informed without having spent loads of money. Um, but yeah, I, I know that this was a massive part of it. And yeah, like I said, a lot, a lot of what I have played, I think, were demos, you know, around a friend's house of like, oh, you got to check this thing out or... You know, I'd read about something in Games Master and say, you don't happen to have a, you know, a demo of that that I could come and see. You don't happen to have like the first level of siphon filter that I can come and test out. Um, So, yeah, I mean, yeah, a a huge part of it. And, you know, you know, on N64, where, like we said earlier, you you know, you could get through a whole generation and and literally have only played 12 games, maybe, Um, you know, PlayStation people just, just didn't have that. Um, you know, I wonder how many of these things like translated into sales for some of these games, or if just people, you know, their entire knowledge of a game is from that that one demo. I imagine there's a lot of that shared experience. Yeah, I think that there probably is. I think that in some cases, I think that 
it felt like the games were made around like one really amazing level like siphon filter's first level for example which i remember being the demo at the time it's so so good and i can't remember much about siphon filter after that i know i've played like probably about half of it i think i got it on um on psp years ago or ps3 and but the first level just where you're kind of like running through those streets and like shooting dudes was so exciting that it kind of amped you up for it and i remember like a friend just going and buying it off the back of that but the big one the big demo that like was a sort of like holy fuck this game i can't believe this was metal gear solid that demo just where me and my friend re struggling through that first kind of like you know you come out of the water and that first like sort of like basically cargo bay room um, where you're waiting for the elevator to come down trying to figure out the guard behavior learning oh if you hold if you press square then you choke the guards out and what a kind of revelation that was and it's like oh if you don't get seen you can choke them out and then also break their necks so they they disappear from the environment you've gotten rid of them like and just like unpicking the complexity of that but also getting just enough of the atmosphere of the game for it to be like I feel like something seismic is happening here. And even just by having this demo disc, I'm privy to this, even though I won't get to play this game for another like seven years, basically, which is what happened mm. with me in the original MGS. So yeah, like um, I think it was a big part of the sort of shared culture. And I think it probably does mean that people remember more PS1 games than they owned as a result and can and have something to say about that experience as opposed to N64 where, yeah, again, the same 10 to 12 games. So, yeah, I do remember I met, um, I think it was GDC 2014. I met Chris Deering, who was a former president of Sony Computer Entertainment Europe. And I I've, I've, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like, uh, yeah, I was there when I made a deal with Chris Anderson to put um, a disc... Um, like to put the demo disc on opm and like uh sold it sold a million copies a month and i i made him very rich he said something like that and i just remember thinking wow like mm. a million copies that's just such a massive part of the population buying magazines you know what i mean so just think yeah. of like all the different types of games that were being sampled then like you can never get the same traction with the demo now because there's just always too much to play but at the time that wasn't the case so yeah they like, have these demo crazy. discs in the in the states do we know yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, um, I don't know what in what to how they if they were sold any differently, but I don't think they were. I'm pretty sure yeah. they had the same stuff. But yeah, um, I yeah, wonder if Metal Gear Solid would have been what it was without the demo. Yeah, it's an interesting one because it was like there was a lot of hype behind it. It did have a a bunch of like E3 trailers that really amazed mm. people that showed off all the different stuff that Snake could do, and you know, sort of like almost like immersive semi approach to it where you see him like laying bombs and you see him doing all this different stuff and it's just about showing how you can how you can play around with the guards basically i think there was a lot of hype behind it but the demo maybe confirms to you that it's the real deal you know so mm, yeah mm. i might be part of it okay matthew we're getting close to the draft here is it possible to boil down the entire identity of this console into 10 games or even 20 games like what do you think the sort of like you know the true the true classics how how many of them do you think there are on this console oh i mean you know just just looking down the metacritic list i think there's you know a good case for including a lot of like you know there's maybe like the top 50 or something you know there's a lot of things there where you're like uh if that appeared on a on a real mini console you wouldn't feel like you were being shortchanged um obviously hard to sort of show the full extent of this machine in just 10 games i do think you can capture the attitude of the machine quite quite comfortably in 10 games and like what it stands for and you know that that general you know slightly more 
adult vibe. I think you could see quite clearly from 10. But um, yeah, I don't know what the optimal number would be. And it's quite funny because the actual mini console they did make seems quite disappointing. Yeah, it's. A, I think it's. I kind of get. It was probably quite challenging to to do because you know probably some of the publishers don't exist that sort of thing when nintendo does one they own the rights to all the games that you want to see on them basically right minus maybe three or four different games whereas on playstation because it's all third party but for the most part it's third party it's maybe a bit trickier mm. um but yeah so the the ps mini is okay so I, I thought i'd fire through actually what was on the playstation classic they released a few years ago uh which was uh 2018 they released it it was um in uh over here it was Battle Arena Toshinden, Cool Borders 2, Destruction Derby, FF7, GTA, the original, uh, Intelligent Cube, I don't remember that game at all, Jumping Flash, which is rubbish, Metal Gear Solid, Mr. Driller, which is obviously a classic, Oddworld, Abe's Odyssey, R4, Ridge Racer Type 4, Rayman, Resident Evil Director's Cut, Revelations Persona, Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, Siphon Filter, Tekken 3, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, Twisted Metal and Wild Arms. Now, I don't think it's that bad, actually. But I yeah, do think she that it's, it there. yeah, it's just it's just really really hard to boil this console down to that handful of games. So yeah, it is challenging. And the um, Japanese one had a few different ones as well. So they had like um, Parasite Eve on there and um, Saga Frontier, uh, Devil Dice, a game I don't know, G Darius, a, Gradi- a Gradius game, uh, Armored Core, and uh, which people pretend to like, of course, and uh, Ark the Lad and Ark the Lad Two. So yeah, it was. It's just really hard because the 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 size of the library is the strength, I think. Um, but there are still plenty of classics within that. So, yeah. Okay, Matthew. Just a, a couple more questions before we get into this. So, basically, PS One better lineup than the PS Two and the Three Hundred and Sixty, or worse? Uh, I, I don't think so. But that's 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 with hindsight and not having those those sort of formative experiences. You know, if if I had you know if I had to play one of these libraries forever, it, I, you know. I'd be wrestling between PS2 and 360 more than PS1, but th- that yeah. that that just comes from personal history. So yeah, I think I agree though, and I think that I was trying to work out why this is, and I think I figured it out. I think it's because third-person games were so much better on PS2. So you know, like you have Devil May Cry and that kind of like hack and slash genre taking off, right? Or mm. the likes of Akami or Ico, and you know what I mean, like Shadow of the Colossus, mm. where God of War, where they just they figure out what third person games in 3d should look and feel like in in a more concrete way whereas obviously here you're at the basically the birth of 3d or at least you know the early days of 3d and they're still figuring out the rules for those things on ps2 they know a lot more of the rules for 3d games so i think that's why the ps2 has the has the edge and then i think 360 as well is also is also better but i think if again if you have more lived in experience than us you might disagree you know you might feel differently about this and i'd I'd respect that and again i think that there are certain types of games on ps1 that define the game that define the console more than they do on ps2 i think it already changes a little bit between them so yeah key thing there yeah i mean if, if it was based on genres i i think that there's definitely a case for like best jrpg generation ever yeah i think so P- that, I know, if, if it's not the case i think that's probably a fact that's a fact right i think people would say snes yes you know the snes has got like a a big library of those games too some of which weren't all localized in the u.s and many of which were never released in yeah. the uk so but i think it's like 
it's it's definitely up there you know it's uh mm. yeah i i can i do agree on on that level so yeah it's um interesting stuff so okay matthew those are that's my preamble about done i just want to give a shout out to some of the oddball ephemera on ps1 uh the big t-rex head uh tech demo of course um the g-con uh sort of like gun control you could have in your house to play time crisis and point blank the Pocket Station, which had some kind of Chocobo mini game on it, and FF8, which I could never, I never played, which I'd, I'd like to play. I think I should, at some point, I'm going to end up buying one of these on eBay, and it'll go in Games Court. I think that'll happen at some point. Um, Along with all your Dreamcast UMDs, <laughs> it's a, a, a very incriminating case I'm building up in Games Court at the moment. <laughs> um, there's like two different uh, Ridge Racer controllers they release for. Um, for PlayStation, one of them is called the Jog Card. I didn't note that what the other one's called, but the Jog Card has a steering wheel built built on top of it, um, which is novel. Um, and the PlayStation Link cable, so you could play multiplayer games uh, without doing split screen. Don't think I knew many people had that. The multi tap that was boomerang shaped, quite a famous um, famous object as well. Um, and the little LCD screen they released for the smaller PlayStation <laughs> One. Imagine playing that on the go. Oh. Really, really funny thought. Um, yeah, loads of like strange bits and pieces on PS One. And shout out to every cursed third party controller that had a turbo <laughs> button on it or some nonsense. Um, I was always the one who had to play those when going around my friend Reese's house and um, playing Tekken 2 and that was um, my burden to bear so yes um, uh, that's jog, the PlayStation JogCon incidentally is what I say to you and I see you rushing <laughs> onto the cinema very say, good JogCon Sam and on that note Kirby Enthusiasm style as we loop back to the start of the podcast we take a quick break and come back with a PS1 draft goodbye <laughs> Editor's note here, I forgot to mention Bloody Shock, didn't I? They released a new controller in 1997 that had two sticks and could rumble, and it worked with pretty much most of the games that were released from there on in, and was bundled with Ape Escape at one point. So, in making the definitive PS1 episode, had to fucking take that off, didn't I? Cheers. Back to the podcast. So, time for the PlayStation 1 draft. Oh, gosh. Here we go. This is where the spice really begins. You've had the sort of, like, very civil preamble, and now the nerves build as me and Matthew engage in psychological warfare to pick uh, the best 10 games for PS1 each. So, okay, the categories then. Category 1, fighting game. Category 2, shooter. Category 3, survival horror. Category 4, racing or sports. Category 5, licensed game. Category 6, Platformer. Category 7, RPG. Category 8, 90 plus on Metacritic. Category 9, Wildcard. And Category 10, Free Pick. Matthew, do you have any thoughts on the, the overall sort of like lineup here? Is this the right set of categories or was there anything you thought was missing as you're going through the library? No, I I think this is the right selection. Like there are some where there's just way too much you can possibly use. There are some where you instantly begin feeling nervous which i think you need to give the draft some shape um if every category is too easy uh it gets it gets um a little bit mushy but uh yeah no, i think i think i think these are the right ones there are a couple where if i don't get my thing i'm pretty fucked because i just don't have the um the knowledge to to quickly cook up a replacement so let's let's see what happens 
Great. And <laughs> with that optimistic note, let's uh, let's get into it then, I suppose. So should we do the old uh, coin toss, Matthew? Decide who goes first. What, what, what would you like? Uh, I would like heads. Heads it is. Wow, yeah. Okay, so how this works then. What Basically what we're going to do is we're going to do... I get to decide whether I go first or second. And whoever goes second gets two picks and then it comes back around to one pick each, yeah. basically, to make the first pick not too um, disproportionately unfair. Okay, then. So, for category eight... I'm going to go first. Sorry, I should say that. Should okay, <laughs> good. For... <laughs> go well isn't it um for okay for category eight 90 plus on metacritic i'm taking metal gear solid metal so, gear solid why is this the the pick for that you have to take first because there's no other game like it on playstation right although i suppose matthew could take this vr missions if you wanted to no 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 bullshit like that <laughs> metal gear solid seminal stealth game a massive step forward for video game storytelling in terms of presentation voice acting absolutely blew my mind how this game uh sort of like looked and sounded on that level this sort of spooky stormy conspiracy thriller we had to go and blow up a, a big nuclear robot that had been hijacked by terrorists um and then uh basically just like i feel like the iconography in this game is like my my sort of adolescent brain comes online when all of this happens like seeing the cyborg ninja like sort of like beaming in and out of invisibility and murdering all those soldiers in that corridor and then like going haywire when you're when he's in that sort of like computer room with you just like all time is shit sort of like all these distinctive you know kojima sort of like uh shinkawa boss bosses like uh, sort of Vulcan Raven and you know just Revolver Ocelot just such distinctive characters all that stuff just blew my mind and then like just no is building up to this fight against this nuclear mech everything about it just really spoke to me and I think that the original MGS as well just has this very distinctive look and sound that the other play the other ones don't have like MGS2's settings don't have the same sort of like vibe here where I think the music is doing as much heavy lifting as like Snake's cold breath in Shadow Moses or leaving footsteps in the snow. I think it's about, it's kind of like that industrial, dour, uh, echoey uh, score that really brings the atmosphere to life as well. This absolutely blew my mind and it remains actually one of the, I think one of the few games you would still want to play now because the stealth is simple enough that it doesn't fuck you up too much. It's not too unfair. It's easy enough to play and control now. It's not that long um, either. But uh, yeah, incredibly memorable, uh, formative game for me. Thoughts, Matthew? Uh, it goes on a bit, doesn't it, in the old nattering? Uh, <laughs> no, of course, I love Metal Gear Solid. Uh, behind the scenes, we've been discussing this as like, is this is this the one that decides it? I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to sag it off. The most I wanted a PS1 was was to play this thing. It just sounded so wonderful, and then when I did eventually play it, it you know, it completely lived up to it. Great fun on a larger sort of systemic stealth level, but then it also has that weird Kojima specificity, and you know, the way he's married those two things has just always made him like one of the all-time greats. This is before it gets too bogged down in any bullshit as well. Like It's pretty pure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great game. The most bullshit you get in this one, because I, re- I replayed um, the last few bits of it with my friend Lynch when I went to Japan in um, December, is that he, um, it's like when there's a load of stuff about 
nuclear disarmament at the end there's about like eight fmvs in a row that talk about that and you're like i'm, I'm good thanks dog i don't need to watch this again as a 35 year old man but i wish you well so uh it, other than that i don't think it does go on too much no and at the time you just hadn't seen anything like this and now when you encounter like walls of cutscenes, maybe you feel differently about it but yeah it's sort of like um it was definitely felt like it was a key part of the experience at the time there is one other pick, I think, that could tip this in your favour, Matthew, where there's not really another comparable game like it. I wonder if you'll pick that next. So um, we come to your first pick. Oh, why have you said that? Because now it's made me question everything I'm doing. <laughs> yes, that's the that's the game, my friend. Uh, so I get two picks. Yep. Oh, I'm already straying from my plan. Um... <laughs> So this next one, I I, I wasn't going to pick it. So one of the things I've been arming and arming about is like, you know, and this always comes up, is like availability elsewhere. And I know these consoles kind of like, they sort of exist in this little bubble where it's like, well, just imagine this thing exists and you the, the argument that something is readily available on other platforms, does that undermine it as a pick? In the past, I think I've put too much weight on that and I've picked games which you know are like locked to a console and actually people don't give a fuck they just like the things that they like yeah uh, as a rule so i'm gonna play to get let's play to the cheap seats right for rpg i will take i'll take final fantasy 7 nice it's tricky to pen anyone in with this pick because there are multiple final fantasies that are that are loved by different people i still think final fantasy 7 is is the is the one in most people's minds absolutely incredible first disc that i've experienced Uh, (laughs) yeah that is that is now factually accurate yes properly truly epic for years i'd only played the opening stretch of this game which could almost have been a satisfying game in itself the amount it kind of packs in the level of sort of sophistication in terms of like storytelling and setting felt like a big leap forwards mechanically i've really come to appreciate it i know i I always coveted it as a very shiny thing because of the the video sequences and the pre-rendered backgrounds but playing it and now having a better understanding of like how flexible like the materia system is and all the kind of like weird subtleties hidden in that system like I, i i think i do appreciate it more as a kind of complete package of kind of story and RPG depth, full of really iconic moments. I think it's worth experiencing, especially if you want to play the the remakes now and enjoy that whole project. Those two games are in like this conversation with each other, which sort of makes each of them a little bit more interesting as well. So it's, it still feels like a game you could discover now and have a great time with. So I don't feel bad about putting it on my list. Yep, good pick. So my next pick... Again, I just want to get a, a, a I just want to get a like a a classic. Can't really argue with it. Maybe there's a spicier or kind of like weirder pick uh, in the margins uh, for survival horror. I'll take Resident Evil Two. Yep, Resident Evil One, absolutely classic. Um, exploring that that big spooky house, seeing these things for the first time. I think Resident Evil Two, with its slightly more kind of full on action bent, in that it just drops you in the middle of a zombie apocalypse in Raccoon City, feels a little bit more exciting. Having the kind of the two campaigns with Leon and Claire and the way they interact, a little bit more interesting here in the original than it was in the remakes. Like one of the few areas I think it does still have, 
you know, a few more surprises that, than that remake, and I, I prefer it in the original. Incredible atmosphere, um, particularly in the earlier parts of the game, in the, in the kind of city and the police station. Quite old-fashioned, but I still find very compelling inventory management, sort of risk-reward system of, like, what you're going to cart around and moving things around around this this building, trying to manage that space while all these iconic enemies sort of jump out at you. So, yeah. Resident Evil 2. I'm confident people will like that. <laughs> yeah, I haven't really weighed in on any of these yet, have I? So I should uh, FF7 first then. So yeah, um, so yeah, FF7 obviously defining RPG for the system makes sense. Obviously with Resident Evil 2, I think this one's a bit more of a. There are like two other great picks in this category. Um, okay. Yeah, so that's the that's the thing is like I thought I actually couldn't decide between this and another entry in this series for this category is the best one because i think that in some ways like the what it is the like the perfect vision of what it is is in the first one um but i also think this has some of the most like um memorable uh yeah. survival horror moments playground worthy stuff where you share like what it's like when the liquor first turns up or you know people when come out of the more body yeah. containers and yeah, and just the police station, such an iconic location. Uh, I know you played this a few years ago, didn't you, Matthew? As well for the yeah, uh, I, Vita. yeah, I played it on um, the, the PS One original on on the Vita uh, before the uh, remake came out. So you mm. know, it's a, a a bit fresher in my mind. Um, yeah, and it's still okay. very you know, even on that tiny little screen, it was it was very effective. And yeah, I I, I, the, I just think the the dual campaign stuff is is still you know a really good hook and more kind of clearly felt here than maybe any of the others yeah that makes sense yeah i think that's um that's a good justification okay so come to my second pick so time to pick one of three games i've played this weekend in research for this um this episode matthew so for category 10 free pick i'm going to take castlevania symphony of the night Mm-hmm. pioneering metroidvania game obviously um in terms of uh sort of t- taking that more action platformer approach and turning it into this more like an uh, adding sort of like rpg systems on top of it more of the kind of like multiple route type stuff absolutely banging music really great and underappreciated by some press at the time because it was a 2d game um and obviously we talked about this before but there was a little bit of sniffiness towards 2d but this i think is another of those games that has held up over time as a you know in terms of like games you would actually play now um it is pretty widely available still not everything i don't think you can play this on switch still but you can play it on ps4 um you can play it on vita um which is where i played it i played it on my on my ps vita which was uh nice and novel uh looks amazing and uh yep yeah, just uh i think i think like atmosphere is is spot on as well really challenging um to get to grips with but the rpg system means you can sort of pull it back around in your favor if you're really struggling mm-hmm. um amazing looking bosses it's cool. it's a it's a really cool game and and considered an all-time classic so yeah i uh, i haven't finished it but i've played about three hours of it this weekend having a great time thoughts matthew yeah i yeah i, I love this game um it's definitely was like in the mix if i was going to ding it for anything it's it's maybe personally i i prefer you know some of the 2d sequels to it on the I, you know i I've spoken a lot about Dawn of Sorrows, but that's not what this exercise is. It isn't much <laughs> Castlevania. It's one of the best games on PS1, and um, it definitely feels like Castlevania Symphony of the Night has only like grown in reputation over the years. Um, yeah, and yeah, like I, I, I really don't remember the conversations around it at the time. Like no. maybe 
because of the whole 2D thing, you know, I just wasn't paying much attention to it. Um, but Possibly you're also bigger in the US. I think, yes, yes, was, absolutely. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, over the years, you just began to see it appearing, you know, regularly in the, you know, the greatest games of all time lists. And you were like, oh, what's, what's this thing that I've managed to overlook? So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a cool game. Very, very yeah. playable now still as well. I thought that was going to be your second pick for sure. So I was like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm going to lose this. And it's another game where I don't think there's anything like it on PlayStation you can pick that's comparable. So mm. that's why I took it. Uh, is no, that? Don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know that I'm too bad at drafts to do anything good with that. <laughs> also, I love us giving backhanded compliments to games. I was like listening, I was like listening to myself talk about FF7. I was like, what am I doing? I fucking adore this game and I'm just trying to like talk around it. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> such is the odd tension of the draft episodes. Well, uh, Matthew... It's particularly funny in, in this one because <laughs> you're, you're not trying to praise the thing I've picked. I can't really praise a lot of them because I don't have that much experience of them. So they just come up really poorly, like advocated for. <laughs> yeah, amazing stuff, really. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's classic. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, it's a failed episode. We'll just well, never talk about it again. Final Fantasy VII and Resident Evil Two are probably the two I've had the most experience with. So that's the that's and the level of, level and of discussion of the you can expect from me this episode. <laughs> yeah, and the two games I just took, basically. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Uh, it's going well. Uh, what's your third pick, Matthew? My third pick is. Mm, I think I know what it's going to be. Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know if you <laughs> do. I do. I do. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Oh my God, so I picked something weird. I just know what I would pick next. I don't think. Oh, sad, but this doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to do a bit of mind games to spice things what, up. What I know. should do and what I'm going to do are, are wildly different things. <laughs> so, with... Mm, so, my original plan for RPG wasn't necessarily to pick Final Fantasy VII. Um, I, th- I thought that was going to be a little bit too mainstream, but I thought, you know what, I, I, I've got to have a couple of things which I'm I'm really, like, rock solid on that I know people like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... For my free pick, uh, I'll take Xenogears. Whoa! I, okay, that is not what I thought you were going to pick. <laughs> well, this is what I wanted to pick for RPG. Right, um, right. This, I mean, obviously there's the, the Takahashi co- connection with Xenoblade, one of my favourite series of games. This is, this is uh, as far as I know, this is like Takahashi's first big sort of like effort in control. Um it's also a bit of a nightmare to find and play in this day and age, legally. Um, I think it was, at one point, uh, available as a PS1 classic on PSP and PS3, um, mm. but not not for, for Old Castle, sadly. Um, so, yeah, just it, I have played a little bit of it, and an uh, older boy told me how. Um, but <laughs> I would, I you know, this is this is one I genuinely I I would just like to play more of. Um, it's set in uh, a fantasy world where there are people fight in these sort of giant mechs. Uh, a mech attacks your village early on. You play as a young martial artist called Fei Fong Wong, uh, who takes control of this mech to fight off the attackers, and then goes on a quest to discover who attacked his village and why it is that he has this natural affinity with this mech. Um, 
Famously, the story really goes places. The thing that kind of keeps coming up with this game when people talk about it and why it really resonated was uh, it, quite adult themes and quite sophisticated plotting in that Takahashi kind of uh, really went big on... Um, there's a lot of sort of, sort of philosophy in there and um, debate about sort of big life issues and religion and he doesn't really like spare on any of that uh to the game's detriment i mean famously uh the kind of first disc of this is the is the, the sort of jrpg you're expecting going between locations fighting all these colorful enemies and the second disc is, is basically sort of like exposition and boss fights um like they ran out of time and money and just sort of sped it up so rather than kind of cut out the the full story they wanted to tell they just tell it in a very kind of truncated strange way like almost more like visual novelly if you've if, you, if you've played this or, or watched through playthroughs um so it's a it's a real oddity but a, a, a lot of like weird idiosyncratic systems uh like because you're a martial artist a lot of the combat even though it's sort of turn-based and uses the 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 sort of ATB kind of gauge type thing for Final Fantasy. Um, it has like button combos to do different martial arts moves and the way that you kind of um, sort of store up energy and then unleash multiple attacks has a big factor, in a, a big impact in battle. And then, of course, you have the mechs themselves, which have a whole other combat system based or built around them. So, yeah, I like... It is a, it's definitely a bit more niche, but I feel like with Final Fantasy VII, I've got the really famous JRPG that everyone loves um, with Xenogears or Xenogears. Um, you have the JRPG, which, um, you know, lots of big JRPG heads seem to love, but it's quite hard to discover and no one seems to want to remake it, probably because of those later game story issues. Uh, you'd be, maybe be on a bit of a hiding for nothing in in this day and age. So uh, yeah. Oh, and great music from uh, Yasunori Mitsuda, who also contributed to Xenoblade. So yes, Xenogears. I think they'll get back to this at some point if they've done Chrono Cross and they'd. Pro- I think the rumor was they'd do FF Tactics. I could see them doing this as well. I think that's probably like the one after that that you'd do. So yeah, I think it could sort of come back in some form. I do think the fact that it's basically unfinished as a fundamental part of its being does make it a a bit more maybe a, a bit more of a strange one to sort of bring back but um yeah mm. a, a, an interesting pick not an angle of attack i thought you'd take like going big on the rpgs but i guess that kind of makes sense because you're a big uh yeah xenoblade guy so um makes sense you're gonna go for that one does look nice this game i do like the little mech mech lads in it nice um yeah, it's got games nice, just like, amazing on ps1 it doesn't use like the, the pre-rendered backgrounds it's sort of 3d models that you can kind of rotate with sort of sprites on top um yeah. i did uh yeah i did also consider um like grandia but i thought that was probably too too niche uh, yeah, yeah. I sp- is Grandia also like a Saturn game? It's kind of like a considered Saturn-y, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, that's fine. Um, I think that's um, that's a good pick, though. And uh, I was surprised you didn't turn that in Wildcard. Actually, I would have let you have that for that. But um, oh, really? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, well, that's pretty. That's pretty wild, isn't it? It didn't come out here, for example. I think it didn't come out. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I don't want to ever push my <laughs> luck in Wildcard because I feel <laughs> like if I try and do that, you'll make some kind of devil's bargain, and then somehow that's why I end up making you take. <laughs> Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 as a shooter or something. Well, the thing I want to take for Wildcard is less wild than that, I think. So oh, okay. that's, that's why I say it. But I'm wondering uh, how I wild you think we're going. the seeds for your... Uh... 
<laughs> I mean, it's not like for your later drubbing. Yeah, it's not croc two. That's uh, you know, it's something else. But okay, um, now I'm going to take the thing I thought you were going to pick. My third pick is category one fighting game. I'm going to take Tekken three. So mm. this is an interesting one in the sense that I think that I think Tekken sums up PS one fighting games more than anything else. And I know there are games in other many games from many different series here, but. For like the broader experience of discovering fighting games on this console, Tekken was it. It was the like the camera angles, the oddball roster of characters, the music, the way it felt in your hands, the simplicity of it compared to playing something like Street Fighter. Tekken was it. It was amazing. It's like part of the PS1's DNA. And I think you need a Tekken game um in sort of like in the draft picks to to really capture the the essence of the of the console uh, and great. Tekken 3 was consi- Tekken 3 was considered the the best game of that series on that system uh, I don't having played like uh, Tekken 2 which I played the most at the time I guess in some ways this is summing up that pick too but playing them I don't think there's like tons and tons between them really and I think that's kind of common of a lot of series on PS1 um, that come out in quick succession but yeah you know Tekken 3 is what largely considered the best one and I think that 3D fighting easy to pick up and play like a perfect multiplayer experience like this is just a huge part of what the ps1 was tekken so tekken 3 it is matthew what do you think of that pick yeah i mean when i was talking to my uh when i was crowdsourcing answers with the playstation brain trust at work <laughs> i was under strict instruction to get tekken 3 for fighting game um <laughs> so that's obviously quite bad that i haven't got it i'm not gonna lie uh, at the same time, I was dreading picking it and then struggling to talk about it. I had very little experience with Tekken. Everyone in the office, we've got... I, I, just this week, I was part of a Tekken tournament at work. Nice. Um, that for Tekken 8. And I got I mean, destroyed in... It was like speed running. It was like awesome games done quick. Defeat Matthew any percent. <laughs> uh, like, really, it's amazing how fast you can kill someone in that game. Um so yeah, I I yeah I lost that. Uh, I'm I. This is just this is a series that I know is is crucial to PlayStation people, and I have just missed out on. By the time you know Tekken was on platforms, I was involved with. I thought it was a little bit naff. Uh, I don't really know where Tekken sits in the grand scheme of things. Like it seems to be. People like, love it now. Yeah, people love it now. It seems quite critically acclaimed now, but I, I thought there was a period where it, it just seemed like a little bit like everything but the kitchen sink. Like, it had a roster of, like, 70 characters, and, like, you Star know, Wars. one of them was, like, a fucking vending machine, and then there'd just be, like, <laughs> a guy with a top hat holding a fish. And they all looked like they were made in a character creator. And you were like, what the fuck is going on with this roster? I don't understand yeah. any of it's this. It's like Rick and, but... Rick and Morty characters, basically. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really, um... really cursed shit. There were several of them were bears, it seemed. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I'm glad I don't have to like try and pick that and then do it dirty by not talking well about it. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. That probably is the best pick for this what? category. Yeah, I mean, I have to apologise to my loud cackle there when Matthew uh, was admitting that he should have picked this, uh, well, telling that he was on strict instructions to pick this because that killed me. That is the funniest thing I've heard in ages. 
fighting games don't feel like they've quite had their moment of you know revival in the modern age you know which um right sort of kicks off with street fighter 4 i guess and i think tekken just for a while seemed like it was old hat then the next then the last one came out and everyone was giving it nines and i was like oh maybe people like tekken more than i realized so um uh yeah so uh yep there are many there are multiple bear related characters in the uh in this series i think it's panda and there's also is it kuma the, kuma, the other yeah. bear yeah so um yeah, so you have a slightly smaller roster in um, in three. Like that's not necessarily like the thing they're going for, but I think it's just a. It felt like a genuine. I don't know if you would, if like fighting game purists would call it a step forward, but certainly as somebody who got into the genre with this series, it did feel like a step forward because it was in my hands. I knew how to do certain moves. It was like it was not finger gymnastics to like do some rad shit, and the animations are amazing because the camera could spin all over the place. It was fucking great. I had a, a fantastic time. So. Yeah, Tekken 3. I think that's the right pick for this category. So, um, yeah. Okay, Matthew, what's your next pick? <laughs> uh, for racing or sports, yeah. uh, take Ridge Racer Type 4. Fuck! Okay, good pick. Um, which I actually have played um, a, a little bit of when it came on to uh, the PlayStation Premium service way back when. Um whether or not this is the right take, I don't know. But for me, I think this this sits in a in a quite a sweet spot between Outrun and Gran Turismo. In that it has some of the kind of like arcadey sort of fun, lots of drifting fun um, from Outrun, but it also has kind of some of the slightly more kind of like sleek sort of coolness of Gran Turismo, and it sits in this this very nice very nice place between them. Um, very classy, very atmospheric game. You know, it's not quite the perfect blue skies of Outrun. It's all sort of, it's sort of like a dusk till dawn racer. And there's a lots of like twilight and like early morning light and tearing through city streets in the evening. Um, but with with kind of like soul music and jazz music and funky music on the soundtrack, it's it's kind of got immaculate vibes that really really hold up. Yeah, and and just compounded by just the whole presentation of the thing, you know, it's almost sort of persona-ish in the way it's got this very, like, cool graphic sort of, like, UI and very striking yellow kind of colour used throughout. And um, I, just, I just thought it was a really, really, like, stylish game, not too far up its own arse and boring like Gran Turismo, not too kind of hectic and throwaway, maybe a bit more outrunny. Uh, it was it was just just right. Yeah. So this is one of the three games I played this weekend. Um, oh, and... sorry to have undermined your research time. <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, you know, I can use it to benefit you, so that's fine. Um, yeah, I agree with everything you say there. I think it's that sweet spot between simulation and arcade, right? It's like yeah. you can't just hold down the accelerate button, but you don't. But you can just sort of like do a gentle tap to go on of the brake to go around a corner perfectly, and you know when you get it right, it feels really good. And yeah, and it's sort of like it feels aggressively sort of like tactical as well. Like you just have to be really on it with your planning of how you get around each track, and I think it rewards you memorizing where all the sort of like the big turns are in a way that like 
isn't it doesn't mean you spin out and you fuck up it just means you lose a tiny bit of pace but it's enough to like put you in third place rather than first and mm. i think that like it's just that again is just like finding that right space for a, a racing game is always the key for me so mm. yeah so i think this is this is about <laughs> this is about as simmy as i ever like to get really and just you know you have to use the brake button yeah. basically um but i think the tracks look good it's like one of the nicer looking ps1 racing games for sure i think the music is amazing they get yeah. that drum and bass kind of like music i like the fact there are story bits in between the grand prix where you get berated by like i'm, I'm on the pac-man racing team basically my car is like pac-man themed and um there's like a dude who runs it who's just a bit like oh you you just about made it through did you and i was like i don't know why this story in this game but i quite like that they uh they went yeah. for it um just a really strong end of that generation uh racing game so i think this was this was going to be my next pick so i think it is a good pick matthew so well Phew. done to you. Finally. Good for you. So Naughty, yeah. naughty, naughty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Evergreen. Um, okay. So I guess I will take... What am I going to go for next? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take for Category 5 license game, Die Hard Trilogy. Oh. So an interesting one in the sense that... Uh, oh, is this the right pick? Well, I picked it now, so I've got to go with it. Um, <laughs> it's between this or Spider-Man on PS1, a game I really liked. But in some ways, I think that Spider-Man has been overwritten in the cultural consciousness by Insomniac's games, which do the same thing, but way better. Um, what Spider-Man has, has in its favour is the flavour of the 90s animated show, which was really good. But I don't think there's anything else that would really make you recommend it now. Die Hard Trilogy, on the other hand, is a real kind of like oddball game of the time. It's like we will make three games that will represent the Die Hard franchise. There will be Nakatomi Plaza, sort of like third person shooting. There will be uh, a light gun game, and there'll be like a driving game for, or like a driving around a city game for uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. And I think they're all kind of like. I think alternating between them was the appeal of this game. Like, I don't yeah. think any one part of them are, like, super, super strong. But it was, like, incredibly novel. To adapt a series like this into a game seems like such a fool's errand. Because they're not really... They are action movies, but they're not... You don't really necessarily see where the movie where the game tie-in comes from from those those movies but this is a kind of like innovative approach to that probably at a push prefer the die hard you know original die hard sort of like third person shooting obviously dated now but i think as a game that was in everyone's collection like a coveted oh it's a you know a little bit naughty and violent and really and like you know as the die hard movies were perceived like die hard seemed incredibly appealing to like an 11 year old or a 10 year old like it just seemed so so cool and this game was just yeah just like a real a real notable interesting artifact of the time if not necessarily a true classic i think this is very well remembered and uh i had a very good time with it at the time thoughts matthew yeah, yeah, I, you know, I remember this being quite a big deal, and um, my friend in the year above me had a, a PS One, always telling you about it. The idea of all three diehards in one is is a great pitch. Um, I, I think it's easy for people to f- forget, or maybe harder for them to picture now, like how big and popular and exciting Die Hard was. Uh, you know, still in in the the mid nineties. Mm. Um, 
like it was just a cool thing and i was really into it and really liked die hard so um yeah that makes perfect sense i mean you know after die hard four and five it's maybe harder to picture what the appeal is but um yeah this was uh yeah this is cool yeah die hard had like such a a sort of like a, a reputation yeah you just couldn't i don't think you could sort of like understand in an age where you know bruce willis who has obviously had some like you know really difficult health issues in the last few years yeah yeah also made like more than a decade of dog shit films throughout the noughties like just made so much crap and looper which is amazing obviously but yeah it's um it's uh yeah i think that it, this just it was like at an all-time peak i think diehard's reputation when this yeah. game came out so yeah this feels like a good pick for this category though there is something i wonder if i should have got instead let's find out what happens next Your oh, pick, see, see i i i I don't know if I'm going to pick it. I found license incredibly difficult. Like, the license game scene is just total dog shit on PS1. This is about as good as it gets, I think. So, yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. But so, uh, um, hey, you could pick FIFA or something. I don't know. But yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I always <laughs> think the sports ones are a little. Sh- I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. It's like, it feels like it should be based on a movie or a TV show. Yeah, right? that feels so, like yeah. the spirit of the thing rather yeah. than like Tony Hawk. Um, yeah. I remember my dad renting me Die Hard with a Vengeance when I was not 15 and or 18 or whatever rating it was. I think it's 15 and being under strict instructions not to <laughs> not to tell my mum that I'd watched it. Um, <laughs> so she'll be so, discovering this now, leaving a comment on Patreon, no doubt. Yeah. Well, that was the, you know, we may not have had different consoles uh, as children of divorce, but you did get to occasionally see inappropriate films i remember him showing me like the first 10 minutes of starship troopers um and i remember thinking like holy shit this is the most exciting violent thing i've ever seen um but only the, the first 10 minutes yeah got to the shower scene he was like off off You're like, <laughs> <laughs> no locker room for you matthew not until you're 15 um yeah i, I always thought that i think watching it back as well died with a vengeance is a little bit more pg-13 i think than the other two you know it's a bit more like I guess you do have some... It's got some of the race stuff's pretty fierce. It is, yeah. That's like the only exception to it. But violence-wise, it's a little bit... (laughs) Yes, I was thinking, what is that sign that Bruce Willis is wearing at the start of the film? Yeah, okay. So um, that aside, but you know what I mean? It's a bit more knockabout sort of buddy comedy. And whereas Die Hard 2 is like got some of the most traumatic plane shit in it you've ever seen. So yeah, not great. Okay, um, what's your next pick, Matthew? My next pick... I'm just going to get this over and done with because I, was, I don't really know what to do with it. For Shooter, I really struggle with Shooter. And maybe you've got something amazing that I've just completely overlooked or I was thinking about this the wrong way. Um, I am going to take Siphon Filter for this. Yeah, I think that's a good pick. Yeah, yeah like, it's pretty mainstream. Like, I, I don't think Siphon Filter's got, like, a great reputation now. Like, I know they it was popular, and they made lots of them, and, like, I think there were several PS1 games, several PSP games. Did they do a PS2 one, maybe? Anyway, you know, it's a weird sort of first-party franchise that seems to sort of vanish, or first-party-feeling franchise that sort of vanished a little bit. But you certainly did some shooting in it. Um, to me, this, <laughs> this sort of scratched the itch at the time of, you know... Games that showed realistic violence were always very appealing. It's why I wanted things like Soldier of Fortune. It's sort of why I like Goldeneye, which I put into the similar category, you know, like shooting people in the head and seeing the little blood splotches. Stuff like that had huge power in the 90s to see, like, 
3D violence uh, working, you know, quote-unquote realistically. And Siphon Filter had loads of that, like cool headshots, little squirts of blood. The the taser is like an all-time classic bit of like hor- you know, like horrible but funny game design where when you shoot people with the air taser you press the button and the longer you hold it like they begin to shake and that knocks them out but if you keep holding it they begin to smoke and then they burst into flames i don't know if real tasers do do that like if you can <laughs> set someone on fire by just tasering them for that long like I-, I think it's implied that you're just like cooking them i guess um but like if only for that i just i i don't think i can have a, a ps1 mini where you can't boot up siphon filter only for five minutes to set a man alight with a taser i think if, if that i think that i'm gonna have it programmed on my mini console but that's the first thing you have to do to unlock the rest of the console is have the sort of celebratory ritualistic flame tasering of a of the first guard you meet in siphon filter <laughs> and then it opens up to the rest of the ui um not every time that would be weird but definitely the first time yeah siphon filter is a weird one there are three of them on ps1 and then there's a ps2 one that is a, a sort of a bit of a notorious stinker i think it was like it got sort of sixes and stuff it wasn't very um it wasn't it was i think it was meant to have some kind of like multiplayer element to sell that part of the ps2's kind of like you know whole deal but it just wasn't really considered like uh very good so people didn't really care and i think its reputation does dip even a little bit on um ps1 over time but yeah when this came along this was like a big a big in-house sony blockbuster in the way that a horizon would be now obviously the scale was completely different but this game was so big, I remember there being like, oh, we had this teacher who later went to prison for reasons I won't go into, but um, <laughs> he basically was massively into video games. I remember one day he brought in a VMU to show off that KO mini game on Sonic Adventure or whatever. <laughs> but I just remember someone saying, have you played Siphon Filter, sir? Um, one of like the tougher kids. And I was there thinking, wow, okay, you know, this. I guess this, ge- I guess this game is the big deal on PlayStation and I'm missing out or whatever. And then what I a specific me- memory. <laughs> yeah it is but i think it's just because um i don't know just it was just so rare to hear teachers talking about video games do you know what i mean like it I just you're gonna it, say he eventually went to prison for tasering someone till they set on fire in the playground you don't want to know why he went to prison okay, not, i'm not so. trying to get out of you I, I was i was just doing a siphon fill a bit <laughs> <laughs> that's fine um so yeah i, th- I think like i say like the de- uh, the demo level i played the- i played at the time i just remember thinking wow this is so exciting and mature feeling and brutal and all this stuff and it was a pretty cool game so i think this is a good pick it's not the angle of attack i'm gonna take on this category but it's um a good pick nonetheless matthew so yeah i don't think there's um anything wrong with this it kind of sums up the playstation quite nicely which is kind of the exercise isn't it so yes okay uh so it's my pick isn't it um right then uh category four racing or sports i'm going to take tony hawk's pro skater 2 added manualing so you could chain together loads and loads of combos boom really really good so um this is a again a genre that begins on playstation like extreme sports games and then suddenly they're awash with them there's from activision with matt hoffman's fucking bmx or whatever i never played that one uh the one i did play was sean white's pro snowboarding on um uh is it sean white is that sean something or other yeah, on sean ps2 one yeah it's uh, yeah i think it was sean sean white's pro snowboarding i think on ps2 maybe it was someone another guy called sean anyway ps2 um snowboarding game but this genre becomes massive, and that's because Tony Hawk's is so damn good. Just a few minutes to chain together loads and loads of moves, get a massive score, complete other objectives in these cool Sean levels. Sean Palmer. 
Sean Palmer. There you go. Thank you, Matthew. Um, chain together loads of moves while um, some uh, terrific sort of like rock music of the time plays. What immaculate vibes and a sort of perfect arcadey kind of experience. Again, just discovering this at a friend's house and just being like, I have to fucking play this game. Such a big deal. Really important to PlayStation. So it feels like it should be in my list. So um, here it is under racing or sports. Thoughts, Matthew? Yeah, I yeah, a, a, a great game. I, it was definitely in my list of things to play around with. Um, I just felt like I'd, I'd evangelized the fourth game so much as the one that I'd played. I was worried that that would work against me if I picked it. It would sound particularly false. I know people would probably throw me a bone on that one. but um, Yeah, I think so. It's the PS1. Uh, you work with what you got, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy with Ridge Racer in that category. Uh, you know, a car will always win against a skateboarder. <laughs> uh, I mean, lately, in a literal, like, you know, race, collision, whatever. <laughs> By any criteria, it will win. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you could skit along the back of... Uh, is it Skitchin? Is that what it's called? When uh, you hold on to the bumpers? <laughs> something like that, yeah. But yeah. good luck holding on during one of those insane drifts. <laughs> I guess there's other, there are some advantages, though. Like, you can't drive a car through, like, a, a shopping mall. You know what I mean? Like, that's sort of, like, one thing you can't do. You can't but, slide uh, a car down a banister. No, no, indeed. Or making up a ramp in a little skate park. Yeah, you know? oh, it feels like a real a real draw between cars <laughs> and skate routes. <laughs> we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. I actually, like, the thing is, I think on paper, this will look like a strong pick next to Ridge Racer Type 4. However... I did want Ridge Racer Type 4 for this this category, to be clear. Like, I think that was a, was kind of like the died-in-the-wall PlayStation. I know Tiny Hawks was a PlayStation No, I, series, I think Tiny it? Hawks but, is up there too, so... Yeah, but I just... I really like what I played at Ridge Racer Type 4. I'm just licking my wounds, basically. But there it is. Uh, got Tekken, Tony Hawk, Die Hard Trilogy, Metal Gear Solid, Symphony of the Night so far. Matthew, what have you got? Uh, so far, I've got... Siphon Filter, Resident Evil 2, Ridge Racer Type 4, Final Fantasy 7, and Xenogears. I think we're both firing on all cylinders here. This I is think a, we're doing all right. Yeah, it's a good draft so far. What's your next pick, Matthew? Mm. And this is where it goes wrong. No, it is yeah. joking. <laughs> this is where it goes wrong. For what? Here's a question. For Wildcard, would you let me have Vagrant Story? Uh, yes. I mean, by all means, load up on JRPGs, my friend. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do that then. Okay, go for um, it. Yeah, Vagrant Story. Another slightly difficult to to play now game. Um, I do have this one on my Vita from the PS1 downloads. Uh, a uh, Yasumi Matsuno action RPG where you play as the um, unlikely named Ashley Riot. This, uh, yeah, this is, this is a weird one. Uh... I've I've had it sort of evangelized to me and I've only tried a very very small bit of it so this isn't this isn't coming from personal experience I'll be up front but um a couple of people I I very much respect their opinion have sung the praises of this like I say an action RPG you play this this sort of single character going around in armed combat full of uh strange idiosyncratic systems in that uh, you 
can target like any limb on an enemy when you go into combat with them but combat itself is governed by all these strange stuff wearing away under the hood um key to it is there's this sort of risk system which like the more moves you do you're basically getting fatigued so it's like another take on stamina but um you become more open to dangerous sort of counter attacks um the more aggressively you attack and the more moves you use in succession so there's a big risk reward element there um but what what the game really hinges around is uh kind of equipment like i don't think the hero himself actually levels up i think everything is based on crafting new equipment and improving the equipment you have and crucially matching the equipment to the enemies um i think a lot of people's experience of this game is just running into combat dinging you know no attacks ever landing and just thinking like what am i missing here and what they're missing is that you have you almost have to kind of like respect your your character out build wise um for each individual uh, encounter you know breaking down weapon parts putting together different weapons to make sure that they're strong against specific enemy types uh yeah like I, th- I think very very fiddly but very rewarding is the line on this one and i've just always really fancied having a having a proper excuse to dig into it um so yeah this is very much a uh, a friend of a friend told me it was worth including it, it does have a really distinctive look to it you know at a time where square were obviously leaning into like pre-rendered backgrounds everything here is made in games so the cinematography is um very very I want to say flashy is probably overselling it. But it's very artfully done, very very striking cutscenes. You know, probably up there with Metal Gear Solid in terms of like two games trying to show a more sort of cinematic vision. Obviously, this is set in a fantasy world, so it's got quite a different energy to it. I love the character designs in this. They're almost like fa- you know, very delicate sort of models with these face textures on them. Um, you know, looks like a kind of precursor to Final Fantasy Twelve to my eyes. Um, has a similar a similar vibe actually to 12 in a way in that it's it's um it's quite like low-key sort of serious fantasy like it isn't sort of really up in your face it's like adult characters there's lots of political intrigue um yeah just a very it seems very sort of sophisticated and ahead of its time um given what else is going on at the time um you know maybe an interesting little experiment but uh yeah i would I, I'm quite happy to have it on here and lean into the the RPG thing with my console. Okay, a few things to say about this. So the reason the like I think that apart from the uh, obviously sharing a director and Matsuno, yeah. Akihiko Yoshida, the artist, is why the games feel similar. The uh, this same character designs, Matthew. So right. that makes sense. Um, same character designer. I think agree the characters look great. The um, he also did the uh, designs, the main character designs for uh, Near Automata. And if you want to know why that game looks like. F- 90 times better than the original near it's because of this guy like he's a fucking master um master uh sort of artist he's fantastic so he's part of it um vagrant story it seems like a game i should really like i bought it played it i think it looks fantastic and the music is great i think it's incredibly boring uh it's a very very dull rpg and like i think this the thing is like 12 i think as well has a sort of like slightly sedate pace that i think this does yeah. And I think that that is much more of an acquired taste than Final Fantasy VII's duh, 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 and like music and then just like fucking animations flying all over the place and quite simple to figure out. This is kind of like the other end of the scale. And 
fair enough it's an acquired taste i think it's really boring and they wouldn't be i wouldn't play it now personally that's how i you feel said about the same it. about hotel dusk which is a great game <laughs> so you're, you know what fucking rate your brain's going at where you think hotel dusk is boring that probably dooms this to a similar fate it's all that fucking monster energy drink you're drinking sam this is what people tune into the draft for. We this got is what there. you want. I'm I'm sorry that all these games aren't fucking TikTok. <laughs> you know. Thing is, though, I but I didn't have any idea you were going to pick this. I never would have called it boring. Like you know, if you'd have asked me about it on any other episode, I'd have told you. Oh yeah, I played it once, and I thought it was very gently paced, quite hard, and just quite boring. But. I was not expecting you, you know. to pick three JRPGs. I let the other two go. I was very nice about the other two. I'm sorry that this isn't uh, the high on life game from the Rick and Morty guy. I know that's more your kind of speed. <laughs> that's a great diss, that is. That's like, a, that's like an orbital strike level kind of diss, that is. I really like that. <laughs> that's wipe out a small nation uh, a sort of like dunk there. Very good, Matthew. I know. Uh, it's, 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 just, it's very difficult for me to defend because I haven't really played it. I don't have like, a huge experience with this game. So you have to resort to personal insults. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Listen, everyone. Aren't you now intrigued by Vagrant Story? Don't you want to see by yourself? Vote for my mini console and you'll be able to see for yourself and make your mind up. And if you need, I need a very pretty sleeping aid, I can also recommend it for that purpose. So that's <laughs> that's good. Well, you might need that because the rest of my console is so fucking rad and exciting that you are going to need something to cool off after a day of playing my extraordinary lineup of uh, fucking Typhon Filter and <laughs> Ridge Racer Type 4. You're going to need something to cool off in the evenings, and that's where you put on the adult, sophisticated, vagrant story. Well, how about I say this? Like, I think the fact that Squaresoft was cooking so much at the time that they made something like this alongside everything else they made was was a sign of how great this console was. I mean, that's the best I can do. Um, but it does it does look genuinely great. It's one of the best looking games on the system for sure. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I, yeah, I've I've just got I've got a lot of absorbed praise for this one. There was a, <laughs> there was a gr- I, I'm pretty sure it it wasn't a making of it. It was a time extend. There was a great time extend on this in Edge years ago. Yeah, I think I remember reading that one. Um, okay, all right, good stuff. So <laughs> that was your wild card pick. We just about survived that. The podcast there, the partnership endures. Hopefully, yeah. okay. Uh, let's take. Category 6 platformer, I'm going to take Crash Bandicoot 2 Cortex Strikes Back. It's like the first game, but better, basically. Uh, you run down sort of like mostly tunnel-shaped levels, not always. Um, sort of like uh, jumping on crates, collecting apples, uh, zapping enemies away with your little spin move. Um, playing as a slightly annoying main character. Um, but it has it is the raw essence of PlayStation beats in the heart of a Crash Bandicoot, I'm afraid. He is part of the DNA of the console, as much as Tekken is. And so, therefore, I think for the platformer category, it had to be this. Did think about being a shite hawk and trying to take Castlevania Symphony of the Night here. I don't really think you can call that a platformer because it's got too much else going on in it. Mm. Um, so, and I wanted to have a, a category that would challenge Matthew a little bit. That was, I'll be honest, that was a little bit of my motivation for yeah. putting this category in here. Uh, but also, platformers were 
you know massive sellers on this this console i think it is appropriate to have a category for them yeah i think like there's a, a bit of consternation between crash bandicoot fans about whether it's this or or warped which is a bit more of an ambitious game about whether it's the best one but i think this one by being almost exactly like the first one only a bit better means it's probably like the right pick to represent this series on this platform um, because i think probably the first one is the one people played the most but playing them both this past weekend i was like well the second one is a little bit better so um mm. i will take that one um so matthew i'm guessing you have no thoughts on that other than oh jump shit etc your classic sort of yeah platformer. yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> great stuff uh so what's your next pick um if you somehow take another rpg under like you know a different category i'll be very impressed you know <laughs> i've still got 90 on metacritic yeah <laughs> load up my friend go for it you're like chrono cross let's go <laughs> uh for 90 on metacritic i'm gonna take legacy of kane's soul reaver oh that's a good pick i like that yeah um the same uh the same boy who had siphon filter on his ps1 he also had uh this on his ps1 i remember going around to his house and him showing me all the horrible ways you could kill enemies you could set them on fire with a torch and then they'd writhe around you could pick them up when they were tired and throw them into a fire and then they'd writhe around uh you could pick them up and throw them onto a spike on the wall and i guess they did some writhing there um this was another like if you you know you're a teenager in the 90s you like seeing extraordinary violence done to to vampire bug things um this is this is definitely a game for you uh has sort of a, a action adventure structure to it so you're fighting bosses and getting new powers and then backtracking so little bit sort of um sort of you know metroidy zeldery in terms of probably more zeldery I, I guess the thing it's most like in my head is darksiders now mm. Um, in that kind of like, you know, a slightly more kind of full-on combat scenarios, but there is also platforming and puzzling and going to and from. But it, it isn't quite like a big Zelda open world as such. Um, this isn't a series I'm very familiar with outside of this game. Like its reputation, you know, if there is a big demand for it to come back, you know, I, I think there were th- things. I think Sam Barlow at one point was working on a on a uh a game related to this at, at when he was at climax i swear i've heard him talk about that it got it got pretty far along i think it's been there's quite a lot of material out there about that game yeah yeah, yeah. that's right so yeah I, where, where it sits in the grand landscape i'm not entirely sure but um you know this was you know very polished uh very exciting i did sort of contemplate you know like a tomb raider or something here but um the recent re-releases of those just revealed them to be uh, what well, reminded me of like what hard work they used to be, and I'm, I'm not actually into them that much. As a result, uh, this this uh, I just remember this being a bit more like you know playable on a basic level, a bit more accessible, nice and gory, very much a thing of its time. But um, yeah, I mean, it got 90, you know 91 on Metacritic, so definitely loved. Yep, uh, an early. Um... Uh, an early Amy Hedig game. I think this yes. is Amy Hedig's yep. first game. Um, I heard her talk about this on, uh, I think it was Soren Johnson's podcast. There are no, no other podcasts, but that is a good one. 
um, features Anna Gunn from Breaking Bad in the voice cast, Matthew. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> nice bit of trivia there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think apparently she's in Blood Omen as well, playing the character Ariel. Uh, the thing that was intriguing me about this is the the je- the uh, dimension hopping thing, where you'd go to like the same place yeah. in a different dimension, and then the puzzles would change or whatever. Like that, that must have been quite hard to pull off on PS One. Um, could you change seamlessly between them? I don't know. I didn't play this game. Oh, was at the time. it? Was it special panels you could? In my head, there's like little glowing portals you standed on. You standed on, yeah. <laughs> little glowing portals you stood on because there were then limitations of how you could move around that world. You needed to like unlock powers to like phase through walls and things. So yeah. I don't think it let you do it just anywhere. Is how I remember it. But um, uh, so it's very much like a uh, Ocarina of Time sort of thing, you know, just sort of yeah. like two worlds. It's quite similar to. Um, uh, I, I often think of like Shadow Man in relation to this as well. Yeah. Similar kind of like gothic, that branching kind of looping ability-led world thing. Yeah, I remember this being like a, like a big deal, um, like getting loads of really high scores at the time. So I think it, its reputation only dipped slightly over time, like the series did, like it only mm. got more coolly received but yeah this was a this was a big deal for the moment for sure uh a good pick an interesting pick not something i would have taken either so i mm. like that matthew okay so category nine wild card so this was going to be my parappa the rapper category right uh, <laughs> but i played it again i don't think that's a very good game um i think it's got an amazing <laughs> aesthetic like nana on kind of like combination of music and visuals from Oh, is he? Is it Rodney Greenblatt? I can't remember the name of the artist. Yeah, that's now. right. Yeah, yeah. So amazing looking and sounding thing. I don't think it's a good rhythm action game. Like I don't think it's as good as any of Harmonix's games, for example. And it's extremely short as well. Um, it's quite a fiddly rhythm action game. I think. Um, I don't think it holds up necessarily too well. It would be a good pick for this list. I, I will admit, but. I have to take my beloved Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, a game I fell in love with last year after playing it NQ64 with Jay Bayliss. And we've played loads of since then in Capcom's Arcade Stadium. Will you let me have this wildcard, Matthew? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just basically like I think a version of the whole sort of Poyo Pop thing, but it's competitive and different Street Fighter characters have different sort of like rules for how you unlock these powerful combos that drop loads of shitty blocks into the other character's um uh, screen and then it kind of like does the sort of three rounds and then you win sort of thing while like beautiful chibi animations of um street fighter characters beat and and dark stalkers characters i think beat each other up um while music from the series plays as well i think it's just it's like the best version of this type of thing i've played and i've i've played like um I've played Poyo Pop, I've played obviously Mean Bean Machine. This is better than than my beloved Mean Bean Machine, I think. It's just fast, furious, has the kind of like Capcom gorgeous aesthetic to really like take it to that next level. Yeah, it's a fantastic game and like one of the best multiplayer games on PS1 and still holds up incredibly well, which is not true for all the games on this system. So mm. here it goes, Matthew. Thoughts on that pick? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a nice, like not like anything else on your console currently, so... Yeah, shows the the true breadth of it. Yeah, my I don't think my console is going to be very representative of the more sort of esoteric corners of um, of PS One. Ah, it's hard to do with ten picks, isn't it? You know? Also, I, I just don't have a huge amount of familiarity with them. I was looking at things like Vib Ribbon and stuff, but it, it kind of looks like ass to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think the appeal of that one was you could put your own CDs into it to create levels. Do yeah, I really I want get... to jump along to the best of Randy Newman? <laughs> I can't see his songs giving me like really exciting rides. They're pretty slow. 
amazing it always comes back to randy newman the sort of obligatory mentioned on each episode okay good stuff matthew so are we down to your last two picks is that right yeah sounds yeah. about right so what's your next pick uh no three picks okay sorry yeah i mean they're not things you're going to take so i can do them in any order um for license game and i preface this by saying i really struggled <laughs> <laughs> That's, that shows how hopeful I'm. Uh, I'm going to take Alien Trilogy. Oh, that's a good pick. I like that. The the other trilogy. Uh, I I have not played this game. Uh, I watched a big chunk of it uh, this weekend. Sort of like I I was hoping from the name Alien Trilogy, it was going to be like Die Hard Trilogy and <laughs> and do each game in an interesting way. It actually kind of like lifts ideas from all three films, sort of mixes them together. But it's very much its own thing. It isn't a a retelling like there are environments that are more like one of the three different films but action wise it's it's pretty full on all the time so it's it's closer to like an aliens game uh kind of in the doom mold so 3d levels but like quite cool kind of sprite versions of the aliens and face huggers face huggers very very underwhelming in this game they like jump on your face and fill up the screen so you can like see all the kind of gribbly insides of a face hugger but all it is is kind of uh blocking your view for a little period of time which which is dangerous but like there isn't like a you know face hugger mechanic or anything interesting it's basically like the blooper ink from mario kart um but like a bit more kind of fleshy and weird um but you know if you want to run around like for the time kind of cool looking recreations of of uh alien environments shooting a huge amount of aliens and watching their alien blood go everywhere looks very difficult because the alien blood can hurt you i think so um i would probably be quite bad at this game but um you know very different energy to alien isolation um if, if it doesn't feel like it's going for you know fear beyond the odd thing jumping out you know in in the doom mold sort of monster closets where loads of aliens pour out but uh you know for the time and given that the state of other licensed games on the console it's a cool license and a, a pretty solid attempt to do it justice i think yeah i think this is uh one of the better sort of like doomer likes from this time right mm. it's very very similar aesthetically but I, I like the way the aliens all look at it it's like the final fight with the queen or something like that i just I remember looking that up and thinking, oh, that looks pretty cool, um, yeah. the size of that thing. Uh, I like that. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a decent pick. It was something that I just completely uh, just didn't think about, actually. I didn't think about this as a as a possibility, um, but I quite like it. That's uh, much better than backing yourself into a corner and picking something daft like 007 Racing or whatever. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's um, that's good. You'd beloved the world is not enough, Matthew. We sort of avoided <laughs> that. Dodge that bullet. Um, okay, good pick, good pick. Right, uh, so I think I'm in a similar boat of like, I know you're not going to take any of these, but let's do Category 3 Survival Horror next. I'm taking Silent Hill. Um, rather than try and fight Matthew on Resident Evil, I'll let him have that one. Um, I love Resident Evil, of course, but Silent Hill is kind of like the other side of the coin with survival horror games on PS1. So a bit different in the sense that it doesn't use fixed camera angles, a fully 3D camera, bold choice for the time, um, but it allows them to do some more cinematic things with it. And I think that the presentation of this is kind of why it's amazing it's the the sort of yamaoka soundtrack um the incredibly unsettling sound design of like hearing sort of air raid sirens and radio static and just the most horrible noises you can imagine in the background does so much the heavy lifting to make this um to to sort of bring this world to life i think a lot of what 
Silent Hill is arrives fully formed here. Like, what the fuck is going on with these town? With this town, who are these really strange people around it? What are these fucked up looking monsters in it? It's more of that psychological horror than the sort of like uh, Resident Evil sort of like sort of I guess gorier slasher horror B movie horror sort of thing. It goes yeah, more tra- so yeah, just tra- traditional monster horror, isn't it? The aesthetic is just so sort of like precise i think the story in two is way better than this and i think that resident evil is a slightly better uh combat game than this i think it's a little bit especially these days a little bit tough to go back to on that level but i do think it's like as scary as the other ones it's just a really horrible game to look at and to and to listen to um and therefore i think just to just to have discovered this at the time would have just been so powerful i imagine and even now is still very unsettling as like more games of from the likes of puppet combo have led into this aesthetic i think it just holds up really well as a as a a slice of horror and what you can do with the capabilities of the ps1 so as a kind of good counterpick to resident evil i think silent hill is the one thoughts matthew yeah i i this is a series which kind of takes off at two for me i don't have a, a huge amount of uh, experience with silent hill uh, one uh, i remember watching a segment about it on a tv gaming show i thought that looks like the most fucked up thing i've ever seen um but my my relationship is is sort of that <laughs> yeah i mean you know i don't think takes off is is quite right this was an acclaimed game um but like it's sort of like uh, a very acclaimed game but it was I think it's like two. Two just has that story that stays with you forever. I think, mm. and this just this has quite a forgettable story. I think by comparison, um, but yes, uh, I think it's sort of like uh, it's also in the wake of Resident Evil. It was just something trying something a bit different aesthetically, like not having the fixed camera angle. And it means they have to do more fog, more darkness, more like going through the darkness with torchlight. But all that stuff, I think, just helps to set it apart a little bit. So um, yeah, really, really effective. Um, okay. Good stuff. What's your next pick, Matthew? Fighting game. Uh, I have very little skin in the fighting game genre, <laughs> even less so on bit PlayStation 1. Uh, <laughs> I had hoped to get Tekken 3. Uh, my backup uh, that I'll be taking is Bushido Blade. Oh, that's a good pick. Yeah, Yeah, a game I really coveted at the time. Again, I had a, a friend who had this and was always telling me about it and the game that they built up in my mind was maybe more exciting than what it eventually was but the pitch of uh, a sword fighting samurai sword fighting game with no health bar because all you had to do was strike the critical killing blow so you know in theory a fight could be over in one swing of the sword if you like nicked their head or their chest and like the realism of that sounded incredibly exciting you know i was just like oh man you could just imagine you know stabbing them when they're like bowing at the start of the fight because that's that's sort of how it was in my head um to watch it now it's a little bit more kind of like arcadey and goofy than that but it has uh you know has ideas of its own for sure um you know the fact that you can like attack different limbs and sort of like wound or disable them completely so that like they then have to fight one-handed or if you like hurt their leg they're crawling around on the floor you can actually get to the point where i think if you've disabled both their legs they can press a button to basically just say oh i've lost this fight and like like sacrifice themselves to you they just put down their weapon and you can like chop hit them in the head so there's like a sort of fighting with honor and the whole thing's wrapped in this sort of code of the you know code of the bushido or or, or whatever they call it in the game um 
you know, you're punished for fighting dishonorably. So if someone turns and you stab them in the back, um, that's technically not a win and, and, and ideas like that. Um, running around these quite big 3D arenas, um, like a little bamboo forest, chopping up the bamboo with your sword, um, always looked very cool. So that definitely ticks the, you know, a pop culture fantasy of, oh, I'd like to fight with a samurai sword in kind of cool martial arts style locations. And it does that, uh, you know, whether it's got like the legs uh, to... You know, to, to, I mean, it doesn't have that. I'm not going to say it's got the legs to stand up to Tekken 3, but it's... it's well, not after it's, a guy chops them off, Matthew. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I'm not quite at the point where I'm pressing the button to let you just give the death blow to Bushido Blade either. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's uh, a, an interesting pick, hopefully. No, I, I weighed up picking Soul Blade for this category because I like that... I, I think I slightly probably preferred Soul Blade to Tekken... Um, uh, because I like that you could just beat each other up with swords, I think, and right. it was otherwise quite similar. Um, and uh, I played probably slightly more of Soulblade because my cousin had it, and I played like f- hours and hours of it. So I like I respect picking a different thing. It's true that Tekken wasn't the only thing happening with fighting games, and this is definitely like the definition of like a cult favorite. There are two Bushido Blade games, Matthew. You taking the first one? I'm guessing. But, uh, yeah, I'm know. taking the first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, no, I I, uh, I have no jokes to make, and after Vagrant Story, we are on thin ice. So I'm uh, I'm being, no, I'm being very careful. Right. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's good. Street Fighter Alpha Three was the other one that people lose oh, their shit. I over. can't. I can't pretend nah. to be interested or knowledgeable in that. That's not what we do here. So yeah, <laughs> no, come on. That, that would ring so false. It would. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, okay. For my next pick, then uh, my penultimate pick for shooter going to take my uh the final game i played over this weekend and the best one i played over this weekend einhander oh it's so fucking good side scrolling uh shooter in the kind of r-type mold i guess uh you're you're sort of like playing this basically sort of like police floating police car pod thing i think that basically can switch weapons on a dime i think that's how it sort of like differentiates itself you can switch between three different sub weapons at any one time and you can pick up loads of different sub weapons that you basically add to your arsenal as you go so you'll have like your your basic vertical fire attack and you'll pick up like a vulcan gun that will do like a diagonal attack you'll get like this thing called wasp which just just fires loads and loads of missiles cannon which is like a really powerful sort of slower gun grenade thing where you just you can fire behind you as well as in front of you there's sometimes that's really useful um there's a one called hedgehog i think it is where you sort of like drop bombs from above really really good a game i discovered from a edge time extend years ago maybe even like 10 plus years ago but people were like oh squaresoft made a side-scrolling shooter and it's one of the best ones and i was like right okay one day i have to play that finally played it this weekend great music as well again that sort of like ps1 genre drum and bass thing just really cool music um and just i think it's just a great example of the genre i really like r type delta on ps1 but this is the one where i thought this like i don't have many real like cult hits on my console so i thought for shooter which is a tough category anyway rather than try and take one of the medal of honor games which i don't think you would recommend to anyone these days where you can play either the ps pc medal of honor um allied assault or like a call of duty game i think that einhander is like something you can only get on ps1 long lost kind of a perfect fit and a genuinely great game because i played it to my, for myself to check so that's my pick matthew do you know anything about this game no i, I just i was just looking at uh, bits of it there it looks uh, it looks cool for sure and um 
yeah, like the right people seem to be praising it, or people who know who know about these things. Um, yeah, that's mm. that's cool. Whether it's enough to defeat the excitement of Sony cooking a man with a taser, <laughs> who knows? I mean, it clearly comes from the heart, so I, I do like I sincerely wish you well with it. Um, <laughs> but I also know our audience. <laughs> and, oh no, I, uh, I think our... filter or Einhander. Mm, no. I think we'll our see. audience. Yeah, I think we'll see. I think they might surprise you on that one. The other thing about. Um, this, I think this runs at 60 FPS. It's very, very smooth, which is unusually slick for a, a PS1 game. Um, and also it does, because it's a 3D game, so it does loads of the cameras. They have these sort of like Star Voxy bits where the camera gets closer and you see like a big boss kind of like float into view and that oh, sort of cool. thing. Presentationally, it's just really up there, I think. So, Ooh. yep. Um, yeah, it's yeah, probably the most oddball thing on my system, but uh, good to have a mix in there. So there it is. Come to your final pick. Is that right, Matthew? Yeah, my final pick. Um, I ha- I know it's boring when we do this, but I have to do it. For platformer, I am going to take Crash Bandicoot 3 Warped. Right. You know, I can't undo years of, of dunking on Crash. <laughs> um, so this is going to seem very insincere coming from me. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it isn't my cup of tea as, as a platformer. The whole kind of linear corridor sort of always running platformer it's 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 just it's not for me i I know what it unlocks in terms of that focus lets you have gorgeous visuals and some quite fun you know gimmicky concepts to the levels um maybe this is just me lazily doing this because of the the naughty dog connection but like i think if if crash bandicoot 2 is is the uncharted 2 of the trilogy like the one which like just takes all the ideas and and really nails it in the second one the third one is the one which it kind of goes all out it's a bit more over the top it has this time travel storyline which lets the levels be a bit more varied in terms of like locations i mean it is crucially exactly the same thing kind of under the hood you know there's lots of riding along a racetrack jumping over holes except you know in one you're riding on a motorbike in another you're riding on a dolphin you're riding you know a t- tiny lion thing along the great wall of china so it, it it's it's different skins on the, on the same ideas but uh quite snazzy you know a company who is uh, you know showing off all its technical know-how on the machine um if if you really get into it and you want to do all the kind of secret hunting there's all kinds of like weird shit hitting the levels and lots of kind of collectibles i mean i think if you do engage with that it all gets substantially harder um i've always found these games quite difficult i would blame that on the kind of controls and the perspective personally um but you know people love it <laughs> we got it re that's sim simpsons meme yeah, when when you look at like top ten lists on PS One, there's always a, a crash somewhere in the mix, and like it, to my eyes, it seemed half and half between Cortex Strikes Back and Warped. Yeah, um, that's why I know. So you know, we'll just see where our audience lands on that great divide. Maybe they'll <laughs> just cancel each other out and I allow us so. to focus on the Siphon Filter Einhander uh, <laughs> face off instead. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I agree. Like, there were some people I think were like, oh, they didn't like the changes to three. And then some people are like, actually, they did, the series did need some changes. And I agree, they kind of cancel each other out, don't they? So thank you for putting yourself through that, Matthew. You really earned your um, Patreon money this month. I know that must have killed you. So well done. No, Um, it's all right. You've got to, like, 
I'll definitely take Crash over Spyro, which I think is like that's just a whole load of nothing to me. But yeah, I agree. I don't think that was. Um, I don't really know why that took off Spyro. I don't think it even had. Like, uh, it was the, the wings. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is basically the same as my legs joke for Bushido Blade. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on to my last pick then. Um, okay, I'm going out on a high. My category seven RPG pick is Final Fantasy VIII. If you'd have asked me when I was a teenager which is better, eight or seven, I would have said eight. These days I would say seven, but it's still very, very close. Um, absolutely, obviously, golden age for this series on PlayStation 1. Incredibly important. Um, and like I think all of them are... They're all quite different from each other as well. In the, you know, the, I think this is a lot of people's first encounter with the fact that they changed the setting and world and mechanics completely between games, Final Fantasy VIII. And so if you played seven, then played this, you'd no doubt be a little bit surprised by that um essentially a bunch of about a bunch of uh, mercenary teenagers who uh get brought into a wider conspiracy by this sorceress from the future who wants to destroy time itself because her uh her uh, boyfriend died i think no her knight died that was it something like that and uh people largely speculate that the sorceress from the future is renoa your love interest and the knight in question was squall spoiler alert the main character so um a quite a and if you believe that that's an amazing um conceit i think that you are basically fighting yourselves in the future as the villains of this game um but a really memorable um party of characters um from uh, good hangs like selfie to bad hangs like zell as previously explained um with a massive variety of sort of fighting styles really bold junctioning system that allows you to tag spells onto attacks to give them elemental powers and make them more powerful uh really kind of great notion that sort of like means you have to think about the disposability of the spells you use when you use them in combat using them carefully some of the best summons in the game as well just really lavish animations the graphical step up from seven you don't have the sort of playmobile looking um sort of like world map versions of the characters it's quite consistent realistic look between the different characters of course notoriously sort of like squall's face isn't up to much as um people joke about in that meme from him at the um at the ball uh, but the uh, fmvs are again amazing step up as well uh great villains in this like cypher what a piece of shit uh sort of like uh sort of antagonist really really good i absolutely dug the school setting when i was um when i was a, a student myself i just thought that was a really cool my first encounter with a lot of those sort of like anime sort of tropes that you encounter uh, many times elsewhere um again amazing music as well just uh, uh, really really good um and yeah maybe seven is the one that people remember and revere more but eight eight i think has like the right amount of annoying people who say it's better than seven that it might attract some votes from them matthew so um yeah yeah i think liking eight is a bit of a a sort of like people sort of build their identities around that shit so yeah. i'm gonna lead into that here thoughts no i i i think you know you need one of these games on the machine for sure um i think any having any of them is 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 a bit of a win you know they're they're all interesting all exciting all massive so i keep thinking about this like it's an actual product and that you'll be thinking about like did i get my money's worth from it and having a final fantasy definitely helps that so um yeah, I got no problem with this. Um, I will finish it one day, uh, yeah. playing this game. I think I've only played like the first 10 hours or something of it. But um, yes, very, very cool. Yeah, yeah. I think I was going to do like an honourable mentions, but I feel like we've kind of got so much of what I would value about this console here. And if not, I've mentioned it like 
Spider-Man or whatever or Barappa the Rapper, like stuff that was notable. But I don't I feel like between us we've kind of captured this system quite well. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. I don't. Uh, Rayman Two, Matthew, were you tempted to pick that for platformer? I thought you you like Rayman Two for some reason, but I don't know. Uh, no, no, I'm not not really into it. I like I, I like the last two Rayman games. Um, the original run of them aren't for me. Um, the only other two things I was looking at were uh, Dino Crisis, maybe in yeah. the mix as a bit of a weird one. Um, and for Wildcard, I was thinking about Fear Effect, which I know is a bit naff, but it kind of still looks amazing. Yeah, nice aesthetic, that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought about... So, uh, yeah, there was also uh, Wipeout, I thought about for racing game. Um, I was re- I really liked the um, Colony Wars games, but I didn't think they were as good as Einhander for shooter, so that's why they lost out. Um, G-Police, similarly, um, just sort of third person, kind of like shoot shooting spaceship kind of games um but yeah i think we kind of otherwise i think we kind of got our arms around the the console quite nicely so um shall we go through our draft picks matthew yeah and, um, oh, I, wish fight, I wish fighting game wasn't number one <laughs> <laughs> One fighting game. I've got Tekken Three. I've got Bushido Blade. Category Two Shooter. I've got Einhander. I've got Siphon Filter. Category Three Survival Horror. I've got Silent Hill. I've got Resident Evil Two. Category Four Racing or Sports. I've got Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Two. Ridge Racer Type Four. Category Five License Game. I've got Die Hard Trilogy. I've got Alien Trilogy. Category Six Platformer. I've got Crash Bandicoot Two Cortex Strikes Back. And I've got Crash Bandicoot Three Warped. Category 7, RPG, I've got Final Fantasy 8. I've got Final Fantasy 7. Category 8, 90 plus on Metacritic, I've got Metal Gear Solid. I've got Legacy of Kane, Soul Reaver. Category 9, Wildcard, I've got Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo. And I've got the Thriller Minute, Vagrant Story. <laughs> Category 10, Free Pick, I've got Castlevania, Symphony of the Night. And I've got Xenogears, or Xenogears, however you want to call it. That's a good draft. I think we both sort of <coughs> brought it there. Um, I don't no think I shit the bed too badly. Nah, it was good. Also, I think we—I don't think we picked anything where we just had nothing to say. That would have been the worst case if we'd have just like we'd just been like five games a piece that neither of us had anything to say about. <laughs> which is what it'd be like if we had like a Saturn draft or whatever. So, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Don't so, even say the words. Don't even give people the idea. <laughs> that's going to happen. No, the next one we do will probably be the Game Boy draft. I have to negotiate <laughs> with Matthew when that will happen, but it'll probably be in the summer sometime. So. Uh, look forward to that but i really enjoyed that matthew i think that was good so you the listener can vote for the winner Backpage pod on x or twitter um i'm sorry the polls are still there but i don't want to put them on patreon in case people think that i'm trying to blackmail them into backing us i'm not doing that at all so it's free to vote that is still available so we'll do that and uh yes um we'll talk about the winner in a future episode i'll also update the episode description to say who won um but yeah you can vote for the winner there who picked the best 10 games up to you matthew we're done so patreon.com slash backpage pod if you'd like to support us get extra podcasts a month we're on uh, twitter at backpage pod as well and blue sky same place matthew where can people find you i am mr basil underscore pesto on twitter and i'm mr basil pesto no underscore on blue sky i'm samuel w roberts on both as well so thank you so much for listening and we'll be back this week goodbye goodbye, goodbye.